Hi, I'm Ben. And I'm Josh. And this is the Bad at Magic podcast, a podcast about games, life, and other things. And welcome to episode 80. Ben, what do you know about the Pareto Principle? Uh, I fought against it when I was a missionary, but go ahead and give us the full definition. Holy cow, you actually know what it is? Yeah, Ugh. yeah. Well, now it, I feel... I don't know. It's like some missionary read some like self-help book for business professionals and tried to apply it to the missionary work, and it caused some problems. Well, now I feel stupid for having done the amount of research that I did to make episode 80's number work. It's okay. Go ahead and teach us about the Pareto Principle. Well, the Pareto Principle is more commonly known as the 80-20 rule. Yes. <laughs> episode 80. Hence episode 80. Yes. And so I actually ran into this when I was a young manager uh, just in the Air Force. And I was told that 80% of your problems are going to come from 20% of your people. <laughs> that was the that was the context you heard it in? Yes. I, and man, it, it worked. It, that was absolutely correct. I heard it the opposite way. I heard that 80 uh, that eighty uh, percent of the work is done by 20% of the people or something like that. Yes. Well, here's the thing is it's been broadly applied to a lot of different things. Um, it was first discussed by an Italian economist, Vilfredo Peretta, Pareto, excuse me, which is where it came from. Uh-huh. And then it was developed in the context of quality control uh, by a management consultant named Joseph Duran. Right. And so in math, it's this 80-20 rule is uh, describing this curve. And, like, we actually kind of talked about this exact same curve when we talked about yeah, the long tail. Yeah, we called it tail. the long tail. Yeah, exactly. And that's what it's talking about. That last 20% is that long tail. And the first 80% is taken up by the first 20% of the curve or whatever. What's interesting is that this uh, this occurs in mathematics naturally in a lot of different weird places, the way math does. This is one of the reasons I love math, Ben, because like the more you know about math, the more it feels like you're seeing the way that the, the universe is coded. You're seeing it's the like code these, of the matrix. Yeah, because it's like, oh, that's the Pareto principle again. Oh, look, there's a bell curve that's applying to this random distribution. Like it's so cool to see these things happen just around you, just naturally. I'm with you. I love it. So uh, it applies to all kinds of things they found. Um, in economics, there was a study that was done in 1989 that the world GDP distribution, the richest 20% of people earned 82.7% of all the income. Imagine that. On, on the planet in 1989. Wow. Um, in computing, Microsoft uses it for optimization efforts. They say that if you fix the top 20% of your bugs, it eliminates on average 80% of your user complaints. Yep. OSHA talks about it. OSHA says 20% of workplace hazards account for 80% of the injuries that happen. So reverse engineer it. uh, Is that basically saying that once you've solved 80% of the problem, that then the other 20% is kind of an order of magnitude greater effort and not necessarily worth it? Well, it's a distribution, and that's why these are percentages and not units of absolute value. It's right. just it, it, any two things that are correlated in this way tend to distribute in this 80-20 way. And so the whole point is that if you have this group of problems that you need to address in your workplace or in the economy or in computing or in whatever, like you need to focus on the ones that are going to have the biggest impact because they're not all equally weighted when it comes to the outcome that you're looking for. Okay. I feel like you and I had this argument when we were talking about the school shooting pro- problem, and you were like, "Listen, that you know we're going to solve eighty percent of the problem here by dealing with the twenty percent de- uh, deal with guns." I think you're right. That's a good observation. Uh, you, it, the way that you were phrasing it, it made it sound like that all of the solutions were weighted equally, and I was arguing against that. Right. The, the last one that I want to throw out here, which is the best, and get us on a little lighter note before we move on, uh-huh. was um, this also applied to video rentals. Apparently, back in the blockbuster day, 
80% of Blockbuster's revenue came from 20% of their inventory. Wow, and the rest of it just sat there on the shelf. Yes, and that's why if you went into a Blockbuster and wondered, why do they have six copies of this random movie? I'm sure there was some nerd in the background in a spreadsheet that crunched the numbers and said, this is the optimal number of copies of Gone with the Wind that you need to have at any given time. Nice. Well, I'm glad that we've eliminated the problem of limited availability of magnetic media. Oh, man, magnetic media was just so great, wasn't it? (laughs) Slash sarcasm. All right, Josh, I want to do some follow-up from uh, the previous episode. Uh, Actually, two ago, I think I told you the story of when I went out to the place where you and I met, Langley Air Force Base, for a conference. I was there for a week, and there's a story I need to tell you that happened in the conference. It's one of those rare life events that that you don't have very often. So this was a writing conference where we were supposed to be reviewing the Air Force requirements for what's called an Enterprise IT as a Service Transformation. This idea isn't unique to the military. It's an idea that's kind of happening across all of industry right now, where basically we're starting to view IT equipment as a commodity and that we want to consume it as a service rather than as a practitioner. Does that make sense? Uh, Kind of. Are you talking about like getting the services uh, like contracted out to you? Or are you still talking about building the services internal and then providing them on a service basis instead of a, a product basis? Yes, that second thing you said. There's a metaphor I like to use to explain it, and that's what I'll use from here on out. And that is the metaphor of pizza. Traditionally, organizations like the military consume pizza, but they make their own. So they own the pizza oven, they own the ingredients, they own the counters, they hire the employees, and everything from soup to nuts, all of the pieces of creating a pizza are owned internally with all the risk that goes along with that. Ben, if you're making pizza with soup and nuts, you're doing it wrong. (laughs) But please continue. They put all kinds of things on pizza. So when you own everything internally, you own the kitchen, you own the restaurant, you own the pizza, you own a lot of risk that goes along with it. What if your oven becomes obsolete? What if you have the wrong ingredients? What if some of your ingredients spoil and you have to throw them away? You know, all of those things you own. And someone said, hey, IT is becoming so ubiquitous that companies offer it as a service. What if I could just pay someone else to do this for me? And the way that works in the pizza metaphor is what if, uh, let's say, a partial step is like Papa, uh, Papa Murphy's. Papa Murphy's, right? You go there to the store. They have all the pizza ingredients laid out in front of you. They put it all and they hand it to you and then you take it home and cook it. You still own the oven and you still cook it yourself, but someone else owns the ingredients. And if they bought too many that day, that's not your problem. Okay, But if you go the full delivery uh, way, then all you say is, I need a pizza, Domino's or Papa John's, and here are the things I want it, and on on it, and they bring it to you. You don't worry about the oven, you don't worry about the ingredients, you don't even worry about the transportation, all you get is pizza. If all you really need is pizza, do you need to own all of those things? Ben, I'll tell you what, that analogy sounds so good and it's so it feels so salesy to like who couldn't agree with such a great metaphor and an explanation of how IT works. But man, my hackles as like an I get I, XIT guy are raising like IT's sure. a little different. There, like, there's there's a logical fallacy here, it, uh, uh, you know, the falseness of the metaphor. But I'm only using that metaphor to simplify the complexities of providing IT services to an organization. Because right, right. as you know in the United States Air Force we haven't gone about IT in a deliberate, organized way. 
We don't have efficient data centers filled with optimized servers running <laughs> the latest operating systems. It's not like that at all. No, and I think that's more of a failure of of like a baseline mechanics of how people get promoted and like there's a lot of um, political um, problems that are that yes are causing that. yes I'd also say that our organizational boundaries have limited our IT implementations. I agree with that. Like if you stovepipe everybody and say figure out your own IT, you're gonna have like compartmentalized stovepipe infrastructure and redundancy and redundant systems that all don't talk to each other. Right. So all of these problems exist, and and the IT guys at the top are like, we have all of this antiquated infrastructure all across the service, and it's a huge risk. It's old. It's vulnerable to old exploits. It's um, breaking. It's expensive to maintain. It requires skills and knowledge and people and all of these things that cost money that we don't have. So if we could just consolidate all of our IT capabilities, pay someone else to provide it to us, we could reduce the overall cost. That's the vision of I mean, ITAS, Enterprise IT as a Service. Which works fine in a for-profit industry. Now you start mixing in like the specific requirements that a nation state's like military services have as far as security and compartmentalization. Now you're introducing a whole layer of problems that like don't exist in the normal world. Yes, you're absolutely correct. We'll talk about a little bit of that later on, but I don't want to go down that particular rabbit hole. All of the requirements associated with the information protection with like higher classifications of information <laughs> and all those kinds of things. Everything that you said makes like if I was in a meeting getting that presented to me, I would say yes, but holy cow, do we have to be careful doing this. Okay, so I was at a conference where we basically got a group of people that represent all of the component pieces of the organized training and equip arm of the United States Air Force, all in a room together, maybe 50 people in there. And we got there was this time where there was this tension happening okay i have i have some experience that's relevant to this situation that that i think no one else in the room has i did a 3 year exchange tour with the ministry of defense in the united kingdom and while i was there they did this transformation that's cool i mean that makes you an important person so but no one in the room knows that and the air force didn't do this deliberately they didn't prepare me for this and send me to this room on purpose having had that information in my background it was just a coincidence okay so at one point i stand up i'm like hold on time out like i can see all you guys struggling against all of the problems and stuff and you're going to get past them and here's where you're going to get to and i gave an impassioned speech about <laughs> all of the hurdles that had to be overcome in order to reach the transformation and how they couldn't see it yet but they would be able to once they got there and they would turn around and look back on it and it would be successful because of these things and then we would realize all of the benefits we were hoping to get out of this thing and then i got a real-life, spontaneous movie clap. What? People yeah. in the room started clapping People in the room started spontaneously clapping at my speech that I gave. Holy How, crap. Can you think of a time in your life when you've ever given a speech and had people spontaneously clap? Wow. No, I can't. Like, what did that feel like? Did you just? It was kind of awesome. Did you just like pump your fist and leave? Like, that's it. Conference done. I, I finished just it. smiled and basked in the moment and then sat down and was like, did that really just happen? Wow. What a speech you must have given. I know. I mean, you're always that guy standing up and giving speeches. I guess one of them had to stick eventually. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that was the story of my spontaneous movie clap. 
oh, we are this, your story telling that, like, it just demonstrates and illustrated to me how we are such different people. Because what I'm, would your speech have sounded like? Ben, I'm not going to lie. I was sitting there listening to you say this and thinking, like, what would I do in this situation? What I would have done, knowing that I was going to be forcibly retired in a couple of years and knowing that this was the direction that the military wanted to go, I would immediately have started emailing, like, recruiters for the big uh, governmental contractors and been like, hey, this is where things are going. I have direct knowledge and experience and contacts on both sides of this fence. You need to hire me right now. Oh, that'll come. I'll get I'll get hired by those guys for those reasons. <laughs> but I can help influence the uh, transition in the meantime from the inside. Okay. If I was going to give an impassioned speech, though, it would be very derogatory. It would be me yelling at people like, y'all are idiots. And then I would have been booed off the stage at the end, which I take just as well as if everybody had clapped for me. Hmm. So I got another follow-up. You and I had talked last time about the book Super Better, which we don't recommend, but which has some great ideas in it. And we talked about a principle that the author called psychological flexibility. And she talked about how there's a correlation to that and the response of what's called the vagus nerve. I'd never heard of that before in my life. I've heard it twice this week since then. So this is another principle we've talked about on the show, the frequency illusion or the Bader-Meinhof phenomenon, which is you hear about something for the first time and then you hear about it all over the place. Yep. Well, are, are, is that what you're talking about, the Bader-Meinhof, or are you going to talk about the vagus nerve? The vagus nerve, but we can talk about, but save your, say to your beta might have one. I'll g- give me 30 seconds. Okay. So, so the vagus nerve idea, and I love this idea, it's that you, your body has automatic processes like digesting your food and making your heartbeat and stuff that you can't really control directly, that just happen automatically. And then there's a few that you control manually, but also have an automatic mode. Like if you're asleep or knocked unconscious, you breathe automatically. You don't have to think about breathing. But breathing is also something you can control manually. And that so, you're welcome to every listener that is now aware of their breathing and just have to control it manually. <laughs> so in, the, in this space, particular breathing, where there's this crossover, the fact that you have manual control over it, but it influences the automatic systems of your body. People have known this for a long time, and it takes lots of different forms. There's like meditative breathing and and deep breathing exercises and all these kinds of things that are that have a real physiological effect on your body because they exist in this space where you're doing something that is at the intersection of the automatic and the manual systems of your body okay all right let's hear about your Bader-Meinhof phenomenon (laughs) okay so Bader-Meinhof the more the frequency illusion like the, the now that you know about something, the more you start actually hearing about it in the real world. So this happened when I was just watching my normal YouTube channels that I subscribe to. And one of those is Gamers Nexus with Steve and those guys. Sponsor the podcast. Cross-promotional thing, guys. Come on. <laughs> I have never seen it. These are like a nerd's nerd. These are the guys that um, they just bought like $60,000 worth of equipment. Custom equipment built from the manufacturer specifically to test like the, the pressure that a computer fan will push through, like with different fin configurations. Like these guys are all about their giant charts and spreadsheets, and they're going to give you like the nitty gritty stuff that no manufacturer would ever care to even test. And one of the things that they're constantly doing is they're always uh, doing consumer protection type stuff. Like they crack this big story on, on Newegg, and like they, they do all these things where they're looking out for us. I was watching a video by these guys, and they were actually doing a discussion about Linus Tech Tips, another YouTube video that I subscribe to. And I, I'm not going to give a whole lot of background, but Linus started out as like a tech YouTuber, 
and he slowly grew, and then all of a sudden he explosively grew. And now he's like a multi-million dollar company, Linus Media Group, that has multiple YouTube channels, and they're selling all these products, and like they're a big company now. Like he has engineers that he has hired to make products and stuff to sell. And he's selling a $75 screwdriver, which is outrageous, by the way. I'm sure the screwdriver is wonderful, but $75? Dude, get out of here. Yeah. In the same light, they're selling a $250 backpack. And they poured all this time and attention into detail. And, like, he shows it on a bunch of different videos and, like, all the different compartments and what they, like, made it special for. And it's a backpack made for people that have a lot of tech and are hauling a lot of stuff around. And it's going to be it's super useful, but it's $250. Yeah, he kind of made a name for himself of basically operating a channel where he reviews other people's products and he's very critical of them. And so he's kind of trading on the fact that he is a person who's critical of details and quality. And now he's trying to create stuff himself and sell it to you, the consumer, as if it is a realization of all of those ethics of quality. Right. And so as part of the buildup for selling this $250 backpack, people are asking about warranty. What kind of warranty am I going to get? And they kept getting like very passive, very non-descriptive explanations of like, oh, well, we'll stand behind our product. Oh, well, we'll support our stuff 100%. And no one really knew what that meant. And, and, and non-committal indefinite warranty? Right. And, and he and what's funny about it is if you watch all of this progression, because he's got multiple channels where he's talking about it on YouTube, he's got his own podcast where he's talking about it all the time. And then, like, people were buying the backpack, and then somebody internal to the company basically sat him down and explained to him, we need to have some kind of written warranty that these people are getting when they're buying this stuff. Yeah. And so then they created one, and they put it out there. And it's not 100% universal warranty because you can't do that. You can't just have a product like, oh, hey, if you rip it in half in a fit of rage 15 years from now, give us a call, and we'll send you a new one. Like, you can't have a universal warranty forever. And right. so, but the fact that there were limits on it kind of screws over people that bought it with this understanding, this vague impression of what it was. It's funny that you say that because when I worked for Sears, they kind of wanted to have that. And they do to an extent. Like there was this corporate culture of the customer is always right, satisfaction guaranteed or your money back. And I remember getting this from the middle management of like, hey, if someone comes in with and they used to tell us this story, this apocryphal story of some guy that worked at a clothing store and someone brought back a pair of t a set of tires and he took it back and gave their money back. Like they, they told that to us in earnestness with a straight face as an example of the kind of culture they wanted. Maybe that's what Linus is going for. I don't know. So I don't know the name of the act off the top of my head, but I will say this. That all cultural thing probably happened before the Sarblinen's Oxley. Ah, it's just called Socks. This is the, the big act that happened after uh, the meltdown in California with uh, Enron that changed like uh, public companies and like accounting and reporting and all of that. Yeah. So part of the requirements for accounting is if you have a warranty on a product, that's technically a liability on your books. You have to oh, report a cost associated with the warranties you that you're You can't just giving. have this culture, uh, corporate culture of unlimited liability. You actually have to quantify it because it's a tax liability. Yes, you have to, quanti <laughs> you have to quantify it, you have to write it down, and you have to tell your shareholders, hey, by the way, our books show that we're in the red multiple millions of dollars because we're offering this, you know, unlimited warranty on all of our products. But it's I've fine. sold a million units of a $250 backpack and at any point in the future, anyone could come back and want another one. Yes, exactly. Free. So okay. like, the, the culture of universal warranties is going away because of that. I love it. And so then here's the thing is Linus. We're going back to the beta might and attribution thing. Like, Listening to him on his podcast, like he was 
getting legitimately upset and making fun of people that were upset that he had quantified the warranty and it was not as inclusive as they assumed that it was when they bought it. Yeah, it was surprisingly tone deaf. For somebody who is made his brand on making fun of companies that are consistently tone deaf to their consumers, it was hilarious to see him being this ridiculous hypocrite with his own stuff. Uh, Or just proof that it's inevitable that if you get too big and too wealthy, you lose (laughs) sight of your humble beginnings. Either die a hero or live long enough to see yourself become the villain. Yeah. And anyway, like uh, that video that I sent you was Gamers Nexus rightfully calling him out on that. And the first 10 minutes is him being super trepidatious. Like, listen, Linus, we're friends and we're on good terms. But, dude, you're getting this wrong. And here's how. All right. So this hasn't had time to play out. I assume Linus is connected enough that this isn't going to fly below his radar that Gamers Nexus did this. I assume he's going to listen to it, and he's either going to, one, just have his head in the clouds and completely be detached and not get it, or he will, and maybe he'll come back down. Uh, I don't know how deep down the rabbit hole of like a very specific YouTube channel we want to go, but every time I see Linus talk on camera, the more I think this guy is completely detached from reality. Like mm. he's becoming this like YouTube star and he just lives in this isolated. Is it inevitable? I think Does so. that just happen? I mean, there's a difference between a guy who's trying to get a good deal on computer products versus the guy who's running a multi-million dollar corporation that's constantly busy working on like uh, I'm particularly upset because a bunch of his channel lately has been him moving into this multi-million dollar house and renovating it. And he's like, oh, yeah. we're making it a smart house. And like he does constant videos about how he's pouring hundreds of thousands of dollars of technology that the average person is never going to see into this house. And I'm watching these like, who is this for? Like, nobody's going to put a, 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 a server rack in their garage that's water-cooled by their pool. Like, this is not a real thing that happens. Yeah, that's funny that you gave that like it was a, a, a um, ridiculous example, and that's actually what he's doing. Yes, he has an actual video where he talks about water-cooling his server rack with his pool. And it's, who's going to do that? <laughs> I don't know. You and I both watched it. <laughs> <laughs> I, but that's the thing. Like he started out with like, hey, if you've got 500 bucks and you want to build a computer, this is the route to go. And now it's like, hey, if you're buying a house in Canada and you've got $4 million lying around, this is the way to go. Like who's your audience, man? Yeah, good question. Hmm. I think we'll revisit this one in the future. <laughs> so another thing I want to talk about that you and I have talked about on the podcast is I had this moment where I was kind of considering existentially sometimes – you, I think, in a moment of clarity, will talk about what our, what the relevance of this podcast, the Bad at Magic podcast, will be a decade in the future, or two, <laughs> or ten. And um, I think about when the COVID outbreak first happened and all of the weirdness of the transition period was upon us, you and I weren't sure if we should talk about it on the podcast or not. I think we had a sense that at some point in the future it would be gone away and maybe become irrelevant and things would be back to normal and people would wonder why we spent all the time talking about that. So we resisted. We tried not to talk about it at first. Do you remember that? I do remember that. And I mean, that still stands today. Like if we spend a bunch, if we spent a whole episode back then talking about like being in the middle of a pandemic and COVID, there would be a bunch of listeners that are jumping onto the podcast now, downloading the back catalog. They're like, oh, maybe they'll listen to it out of nostalgia. Or if they're younger, maybe they won't even have remembered what COVID was. Yeah. So then, then there's something else that's happening, and that is as the uh, the disease itself has followed, I don't know, the principles of, of uh, 
survival of the fittest, where like the gene has kind of evolved from its initial variants into something that's very efficient at spreading, but very inefficient at killing people. It's become less virulent and less dangerous. And now it's kind of been downgraded and people are taking it less serious, but they still call it by the same name. So there's this weird thing that's happening where like, I don't know, it almost feels like this cognitive dissonance of people not taking this deadly thing that changed our world very serious. Well, are you getting that? Uh, I'm wondering if people in the future are just going to think we were crazy. They're like, oh, yeah, I got COVID. And they'll talk about it the way we talk about the common cold. I mean, maybe. But I think anybody that has any idea of how diseases work understand that that's how it goes. Like, it's the same way that we talk about, like, a common cold. If you're a sustenance farmer in the 1500s, you got a cold, you were probably going to die. But <laughs> really, though? It, probably not. Hey, that's that's more like if you got a splinter or if you stepped on yeah. a rusty nail or something. Yes, yeah, you were yes, done for. There you go. But I, I don't. I really don't know how how that one's going to play out. Like maybe future generations will think we're crazy, or maybe future generations will look back. This uh, every textbook in America, you know, forty years from now, will have a chapter about COVID and what we learned about you know pandemic psychology and public policy. Yeah. Well, mark this page because we're going to come back to it. Josh, we got a we got a question from one of our listeners on our subreddit, uh, reddit.com slash r slash badatmagic. Uh, I think one of them recognized that you and I, as current and former employees of the United States government, have some insight to offer into something that's happening in the public space right now. And they specifically asked us to help contextualize their understanding about the seriousness of the accusations that are being levered, levied at former President Donald J. Trump. Right. Specifically about the fact that he kept classified documents in his personal residence in unauthorized, secured locations well beyond the time that he was supposed to have turned them over and unbeknownst to people who were supposed to know. Yes. Okay. You've already used some terminology that I think you assumed that maybe the average person knows that they don't know. So I'm going to I'm going to kind of give this like a 101. So we're probably going to take like 10 minutes here and I want to fully explain this thing from the perspective of people who know to those that don't. Okay. So back in June, the Department of Justice at the behest of the uh, National Archives basically had determined that there was a, a significant number of classified documents that were missing from the White House and that they believe they were taken by the Trump administration when he departed uh, at the end of his term. So they contacted Trump through his people and started asking and gave a specific list. These are the documents we're looking for and that it was not a fruitful collaboration. It didn't turn <laughs> up. It didn't answer any of the questions. They're just like, nope, don't got them. So where'd they go? Don't know. You know, call someone else. I don't I'm, I'm making that up. I don't know what the actual exchange was like or who <laughs> said it or at what level. Dramatized any, for comedic value. But anyway, at some point it reached a level. They're like, all right, we got to go down there and see for ourselves because we don't think these guys are telling us the truth. So they got enough evidence together to convince a federal judge to give a warrant to the FBI to go to Trump's estate in Mar-a-Lago and determine if these classified documents that were missing from the White House were indeed there. Let's also be clear. The fact that the judge cleared a no-knock warrant and they, they didn't get any previous uh, warning that they were coming to actually do this means that they had substantial or they proved to this person who's theoretically a, an arb or a non-partial third party 
that if they gave him warning previously that he would either destroy the documents or dispose of them in an approved manner. Yes. Okay. Yes. Now, here's where the here's where the classified documents 101 comes in and I think this is the question that was being asked by our listener on Reddit. The ability of a nation to decide that some information requires special protection is kind of inherent to a government of a nation. And I'm sure every nation has their own plan for this. This is carried out in the in under the United States Constitution under the executive branch of government that carries out execution of government. The kind of roll-up governing publication for this is Executive Order 13526, which was last signed into law and revised by President um, Barack Obama in December 2009. It gives all of the rules governing what, who, what, when, where, why, and how of classified information. So I'm going to run through it real fast. So when... In order to make a decision about whether or not you're going to classify information, you have to have someone at the top who says yes or no about whether or not information is classified. This is called the original classification authority. In most cases, it's someone at the very top, and this document specifically limits limits the number of people who can do this, but who has oversight over both the information itself and the impact disclosing it could have, and then makes a risk decision associated with that. And that's the key. This is the one thing that I want to hammer into people's heads. If you're droning, if you're tuning out because of Ben's discussion about uh, an executive order that was signed by Barack Obama, like this is all important. So listen to what he's saying. But if you take nothing else away from this, take this away. The higher something is classified is directly proportional to how much damage like that information getting out will cause the country. Yes. So this publication defines three and only three levels of classification. Confidential, secret, and top secret. And and they're basically just hierarchical. It's kind of subjective. But basically, if it could cause damage to national security, it could be confidential. If it could cause serious damage to national security, it's secret. And if it could cause exceptionally grave damage to national security, it's top secret. Now, the kinds of things the government wants to keep secrets about, they give eight different categories, but they're the stuff you imagine. They're the things of action movies and spy thrillers and political intrigue. Military plans, weapon systems and operations, government information about foreign governments, intelligence activities, foreign relations, scientific exam, uh, scientific achievements relative to national security, uh, government programs for safeguarding nuclear materials and facilities, vulnerabilities of government systems or defense capabilities, and the development, production, or use of weapons of mass destruction. The other interesting thing about this is things can be classified because not necessarily of the information that they contain, but because of where they came from. Yes. If, and you know this if you've ever like um, like listened in on somebody's conversation or eavesdropped on somebody and then later had a conversation with that same person and dropped a piece of information that you weren't supposed to know and they called you on it. Wait a minute. How right. do you know that? You only could have known that if you heard it from so-and-so. Exactly. And so there's a lot of information that is classified not necessarily because of what it contains, but because of where it came from. Or the fact that you knew it. Yes. So if it's about one of those eight things and it could cause some degree of damage to national security to be it known, then someone is the original classification authority and can label it as such and classify it. Now, there's a tension that exists in a free society that maybe doesn't exist in other societies that are less free. But in the United States of America, the tension is that we want to have a government that protects us, but we also want to be protected from our government. 
<laughs> so this publication is kind of the hallmark of that in that it you can tell they want to protect the information, but they also want to keep us safe from a government that has unlimited rights to make anything they want secret and never tell us. Right. So all of these protections come with expiration dates, mandatory expiration dates. No information can be classified for more than 25 years. In fact, some of the most interesting stuff, even things we've talked about on this podcast, like you talked about past government space-based weapon capabilities. The reason that be, ever became declassified is simply because that the classification deadlines for that information expired. However, if you know these things about us, whether it's our military plans or if we if we're creating a space station that has an exhaust port and all you'd have to do <laughs> is fire some photon torpedoes down the exhaust port and it would destroy the whole thing. We want to keep that would be a top secret, Josh. That, I mean, really it's, uh, it's spoilers the, for Star Wars. It's barely the size of a womp rat. I mean, I don't I don't see why <laughs> we wouldn't keep that secret. So basically we that's how you protect information. Now there's another access to this. Not just about whether it's about one of those eight things and how serious it is, but also how important is it that so you have <laughs> sorry I, my words are tripping over over myself. It's somebody in order to have access to those things needs to have a security clearance which guarantees that they are favorably uh this is a complicated thing, and it has a whole other publication that covers it. But basically, do we trust this person to not share this information for love or money because it could hurt us? There, Yes. Anybody that you've ever heard of, like you're talking about like security clearance and investigation and need to know. It's not yes. just like— yeah, yeah, so that's the next part. It, will they promise not to uh, agree? And then do they have a need to know it? Go ahead and talk about need to know. So that's the thing is it's not just about classification. Like Ben and I, if we had clear, I had clearances in the past. I presume Ben has a clearance now. I'm not going to ask him live on the podcast. I could get him in trouble. Um, but there is, we have to, just because you have a clearance doesn't give you automatic access to everything that you are cleared to know. Like if you have a if you have clearance for secret level information, that doesn't mean you just get to jump on the secret internet or whatever the equivalent of that is and start downloading all the files just to peruse at your leisure. That's not a thing. Like you actually have to have a need to know that in order to fulfill your role in your position that you are currently in. And so whenever you show up to a new job, they do this thing where they read you in. It's like, okay, these are the things that you're going to have access to because you need to know them. And then when you leave that job, okay, these are the things that you no longer know. And that's always a fun briefing to get. It's like, just remember, yeah. you don't know any of this stuff. Like, uh, if, for example, like part of uh, one of the jobs that I had to do, um, I received a level of clearance where now – if I ever were to write any sort of published book or pamphlet or magazine or anything, if I'm going to publish anything, I have to send a draft of that document to a government office to have them read it to make sure I didn't accidentally put any classified information in it. I wonder how efficient their turnaround is at that office. <laughs> uh, can you imagine the kind of crap that they must get to read firsthand? Oh, man. Like like every John Clancy novel, they read at least a year in advance. <laughs> Yeah. So if you have someone that you trust, they promise not to tell it and they have a need to know, then they can have access to the information. Like you said, as soon as your need to know it ends, so does your access to that information. 
There's a fourth clause. It's not in this document. And by the way, I want to give a retroactive disclaimer. Everything I'm saying right now about Executive Order <laughs> uh, 13526 is oh, is public domain, completely available to anyone. Man, I thought that was implied when we said it, but you're right. We need okay. to tell people, don't worry. Listening to this podcast does not make you an enemy of the state. Like uh, Federal troops in ski masks are not going to break into your house for listening to this. Okay, but there's an end around on all three of those things. Uh, security clearance, non-disclosure agreement, need to know. Do you know what it is? I don't. Duly elected by the American people. Really? If you're president, if you get elected president of the United States, are they going to re- reject your ability to access information based on a security clearance, and a signed non-disclosure agreement, or a need to know? I mean, I guess not. No. It, uh, to, to, to misuse the word, that trumps everything. <laughs> and I, I, that makes sense because, like— Ben and I both to get our clearances, we had to go through extensive like uh, background checks. Background investigation. And this isn't like when you sign up for a new job and they say they're going to call your references and they don't. No, these people track down. Like You're required to give them an extensive list of everyone that has ever known you. And they call a bunch of them and like ask a ton of very deep and detailed questions about your life. Yeah, they check your credit. They... Uh, because they believe all, they check your like divorces or your whether or not you pay child support. All these things are indicators that can indicate that either you're vulnerable to uh, espionage or that you have foreign allegiances or something like that. It's all bad stuff. And as a tangent, this is the reason that having a security clearance is a very desirable trait in the uh, professional world if you get out of the military because you have it for a certain amount of time and it can be renewed. But to get an initial investigation is incredibly expensive. And so if the government already paid you for your investigation and you already have your clearance, you get out. Now the company that's hiring you, they don't have to pay for that. Yeah, and and they estimate the value of that somewhere like $50,000. Something like that. Okay, so the point I wanted to make about all of that is once information is deemed to be potentially damaging to the United States in one of those eight categories and a person is given access to it, then there's a whole bunch of protection that goes on top of the recording and storage and use of that information. Holy crap. So many rules about it. Where you can store it, how long you can store it. it uh, let's say, for instance, you have a hard copy of a piece of information that's top secret FCI. You need to have it in a folder where it's securely attached. It has a cover sheet on it that indicates it so that someone that doesn't have access to that information that intends to do well wouldn't accidentally look at it and see things they're not supposed to see. That's a term you actually didn't explain yet is we have confidential secret and then top secret. And then there's also the abbreviation SCI, which stands for Special Compartmentalized Information. Basically, that goes back to the idea that not everybody needs to know everything. And so things that are classified at specific levels get put so into So it's not boxes. a higher level of classification. No, it's just, it's just a subcompartment of top secret yes, or secret. Like there's little boxes inside of top secret that you're allowed to know and allowed, not allowed to know. And that's what SCI means. Yeah, I saw Trevor Noah talking about this on his show. And he's like, what is that? Is it higher? Yeah, it's, it's not. It's the same. It's just a, it's a different axis. It's like um, if you imagine secret or secret or top secret is like a big room you don't get to go in and see all like everything that's in this room they break it up into little storage rooms and you're only allowed to go into specific ones yeah all right so i want to read something from section 5.5 of executive order 13526 it says if the director uh determines that someone has violated these has violated the custody that they've agreed 
uh, officers and employees of the United States government and its contractors, licensees, certificate holders, and grantees shall be subject to appropriate sanctions if they knowingly, willfully, or negligently disclose to unauthorized persons information properly classified under this order or contravene any other provision of this order or its implementing directives. It's basically the like, if you don't, if you don't make a diligent effort to protect information that you've been given access to, you can be li- liable under the law. And Ben, this is where we start getting in the meat and the potatoes of the question that our that our listener actually gave us. It's like, how bad yes. is it that a former president of the United States had a bunch of undisclosed secret and top secret documents uh, on his property? Um, I am going to tell a little anecdote that might put things into perspective. Okay. One time I was in a, a top secret area and they call these vaults and they call them that for a reason. They have to be built to certain specifications. They have like specific hardening against electromagnetic interference, big giant doors, like all kinds of stuff. And I was in this vault and we were receiving a briefing and this young man's phone rang in his pocket. <gasps> and he, he like everybody went dead silent and everybody's staring Because at him. everyone knows you're not allowed to have your phone inside of this vault. Yes. And so then like he reached in and muted it and he was like, oh, sorry. Oh, I should go put this outside, right? And the guy giving brief was like, no, you're going to give it to me. And like he took the phone that moment and he put it into a machine that degausses hard drives. And like if you've never seen a degausser, they're great. It's like a microwave on steroids that wipes out every possible trace of electron anything that's ever happened. Yeah, I'm sure the phone was worthless after that. Oh, it was – It was. <laughs> I, I don't know what's denser than a brick. Like there was nothing on this phone ever again. Like it would never turn back on. Like this phone was like – was beyond dead. Yeah. And but and then like that that story and then just illustrating the fact that I'm going to ask you a question, Ben. Sure. What would happen to anyone that you yes. know, regardless this of rank, if they had if it was found out that they had any of these kinds of documents in their house? Like what would happen to them? OK, can I quote uh, can I quote former President uh, Donald J. Trump on this? Oh, geez. Uh, please, by all means. Okay, so he was speaking about the allegations that um, former Secretary of State Hillary Rodham Clinton had had um, classified documents on a personal email server that she owned and had access to that wasn't cleared for the storage of classified information. And he said, in my administration, I'm going to enforce all laws concerning the protection of classified information. No one will be above the law. That, well, okay, that, that falls into the – there was somebody that said this forever ago. Like there's always a tweet. Whenever like a politician says something, yeah. there's three or four tweets that say – from that person saying exactly the opposite thing. But like the point that I'm getting to is anybody, any other military member that yes, was found to if have – if it was you or I, we, we would be buried. We would be think, flayed in a public square and a sign think, around think our neck. Bradley Manning or Edward Snowden. Like when I say they're going to cut off our heads and put it on a pike, like I'm not doubting that. Like that might happen. Yes. So the protection of this information is so extensive that the fact that it even exists in Mar-a-Lago is a violation of like 100 different rules. Oh, that's the other thing, too. This is what I can't I can't I just can't wrap my head around this because, I mean, like I was talking about before, some information isn't that damaging, but it's secret because of where it came from. Right. Ben, what what information does the president of the United States have access to? Like he, all of it. All, all of it. Like he's only He knows what's in Area 51. Like it's only it can he, it can only He has the nuclear launch codes. Nobody he, is going to put something on his desk that is trivial. 
he knows what Kim Jong-un had for breakfast. The only things that he gets are going to be the stuff that is so incredibly damaging to the country that it's unthinkable to lose it. Right. Right. So because of that, there's protections associated with it. When he got briefings in the White House, he was in an area that qualified, I'm sure, of what you call the vault. Yes. It had the the physical and and uh, electronic and protections that had been scanned for bugs, it, you know, all those kinds of, they prohibited use of cell phones, all those kinds of things that protected that information. We have secure areas, there's there's storage procedures, there's uh, certified safes that we use for locking up this information, all of those things. And if you need to transport it from one approved area to another approved area and you can't use it anywhere in between, you have rules and approved couriers and all those kinds of things. The fact that these documents exist in Mar-a-Lago, I'm, I'm sure his office in Mar-a-Lago isn't a SCIF, an SCI facility, <laughs> approved for the storage of top-secret classified information. So the fact that it even exists there is a violation of all those rules, all of them. Whenever anybody gets on social media and starts talking about like, oh, well, he has executive privilege, my response to that is the fact that he is not like in a stockade, like in an actual federal prison is his executive privilege because there is no other excuse for it. So this document kind of talks about it. And I heard someone in the news suggest that uh, he, as the original classification authority, could just declassify this information. Yeah, but that's not a hand wave procedure. That's not something. It is absolutely not. And not only that, but once he's no longer the president, he no longer has that authority. (laughs) So if he didn't, if he didn't specifically go through, if he didn't do it in writing before he left office, it's too late. There is a bureaucratic process that I'm sure he ignored that he didn't want to do. And so he just said, oh, no, all this is declassified. Guess what? It doesn't work that way. We have laws. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. That goes back to the point I'm going to make, and and we can close this page. We can close this discussion, that we live in a society where we want the protection that comes from having a government that keeps secrets, but we also want the protection that comes from living in a gov- under a government that is transparent enough that we can trust them not to keep secrets that would that would bring corruption and and uh, tyrannical governance. That's interesting you use those specific terms in reference to what we're talking about. We want them to be transparent enough that we can trust them to do what's in our best interest so that we can look and see what they're doing. And yet we can't see everything because if we knew the nuclear launch codes or what the what kind of, you know, what how big the port on the hole on the exhaust port on the Death Star was, that that could cause exceptionally great damage to, <laughs> to our interests. Nearly two meters. Man, whew, the rebels really abused that secret, didn't they? <laughs> so, yeah, it, it it's... There's, there's no, there's no escaping this. It, it, a reckoning must be had. So, to answer our original listener's question, how bad is it that this stuff was found on Mar a Lago? My response to that is, I'm surprised the FBI didn't light him on fire. Yeah, it's really bad. Really bad. I'm sure they're going through now. I, even the FBI guys that went and picked it up probably don't even have the right kinds of access to look at it. No, and, and it absolutely not. There's no way. Yeah, anyway, really bad. That's the answer. Uh, (laughs) That's the end of that. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Ben, you know what? Let's go on a lighter note. Like, can I do something very random and stupid? Sure. Okay. So this is going to be one of our bad at segments. I'm going to call this bad at, let's say, relationships, but not in the way you're thinking. Okay. So I 
I experienced for the first time a parasocial relationship in the past two weeks. Okay? Yeah. So I, there's a Twitch streamer that I watch uh, occasionally. Yeah. yeah, did you... Yeah, yes, yes. Okay, his name is... Or his handle is Numantanum, the Nummy. And yeah, his, I think his name is Kenji Igashira. Yeah. I, I played him once on stream. I think I have a video recording of me beating him. Which is outstanding, beating yes. Numantanum. So Kenji, as people call him. But I'm watching his, his Twitch stream from time to time because he'll play like the new Magic sets or he'll play the Vintage Cube when it comes out. And I really like his draft style and I like the decks that he plays. And he's unapologetic and he's kind of a jerk when he's playing his opponents. I'm, I'm a fan. Yeah, he's he's a good, good Magic personality. Yeah, and I've actually learned quite a bit about how to draft well from him. And so one of the things, one of the benefits that I have is one of, of all of these like software as a service nonsense things that I have to sign up for is Amazon Prime wants to throw all this crap at you because they want you to be more invested in all of their ancillary products, okay? And so Amazon Prime comes with one free Twitch subscription. Ah, uh, yes, yes. And because they want you like, oh, I subscribe to this person on Twitch. I don't have to watch the ads. That's so nice. Maybe I should subscribe to other people and give more money yeah, to our Amazon Lords. Cross-promotion yes. of their brands. So Amazon is cross-promoting Twitch because Amazon owns Twitch. But I don't watch any other Twitch streamer, and my wife doesn't know what Twitch is. So it's an easy kill for me to just use that Amazon Prime Twitch subscription every month. This is the only thing they make it annoying is you have to click it every month. It's not on a recurring thing. Sure. I have to every month I have to click and say, yes, I want to resubscribe and I want to use my Prime subscription that I get for free. But here's the thing. As I did that, as I was watching him do the new draft for the new set that was coming out, and it had this little box that came up and says, like, oh, share your subscription like anniversary with the person that you're watching. I was like, oh, that's interesting. And I hit the little button. And it put a little message into the streaming chat. And there's that's one thing about Twitch is you're watching somebody play a game, but there's also this stream of people that are also watching him, and they get to chat with presumably the streamer and then also each other. Right. And there's a lot of incentives there for them to acknowledge people that are giving them money while they're playing their game. Yes, because, again, cross-promotion, parasocial relationships, like they're getting paid too. This is their job is to make these people happy and to be entertaining so more people will come watch and give them more money. Mm-hmm. And so there's this little box that was put into into the chat that said, oh, my handle, which happens to be my first and last name because I am unoriginal, has subs- has resubscribed and has been a subscriber for five months on whatever, whatever, through Amazon Prime. And I'm watching his stream like, oh, that's cute. And he goes, hey, Josh Fleshman, thanks for the five months of Prime subscription. And Ben, I got a little jolt. Like in the moment before I could stop <laughs> it, before I could stop it from happening, the endorphins hit my brain and my brain went, oh, this guy who I watch on the media who doesn't know me from Adam said my name out loud on a Twitch stream. And then <laughs> it took the rest of my logical cognizance to crush that part of my brain and like just re-explain to it that this is not real. This is a parasocial relationship. Like, he is doing this for the money. It is his job to say, to read those little boxes when they come up. Stop being excited that Numata Mummy said my name on a Twitch stream. Yeah. Is that your final conclusion on that subject? Yeah, I, I just thought it was a funny little thing. And, and, and the fact that now we can tie it in if we okay. want. I don't know if you know this, but when we founded the Bad at Magic podcast at Grand Prix Las Vegas in, in uh, 2018, uh, he was there. He was one of the keynote speakers, and he was giving a forum where they had like those stadium seating, and he was streaming from the stage. Oh, man. And I sat and watched him for a minute. But let's just say, let's just say that you'd already had this experience, and we were there, and we met him face to face. Like he came down off the stage, and we're like, "Hey, Kenji, good to meet you. Mind if we take a selfie?" And he'd be like, "Hey, I'm one of your your uh, 
one of your supporters on Twitch. I know you wouldn't say that, but let's just say you did. And he was like, oh, thanks for being a supporter. Like, is there not something real to that? Uh, I mean, maybe. This was like you're talking about 2018. And I remember another instance that happened when we were there in Vegas is you saw LSV, Louis Scott Vargas. Yes, Louis Scott Vargas. And you handed me your phone like, oh, my Josh, take a picture of me with Louis Scott Vargas. I'm like, okay, who's this guy? <laughs> and then Ben took a picture with LSV, Louis Scott Vargas. And at the time in 2018, I had been out of magic for years. I had been like I was relapsed and like. Yeah, he's a Hall of Fame pro. I had been clean for years and I didn't know who LSV was then. <laughs> but now since you got me back into it, it's so 2018, I've been like just in the hobby again, trying not yeah. to spend as much money as before. But now I know very well who LSV was. And I would have been like, no, you hold my phone while I get a picture with LSV. <laughs> yeah, and he was very gracious and took a nice picture with he me. He was. But this is the thing. So now I know who all these people are, and I'm going to want pictures with them. And this is the – here, Ben, Ben, look at me in the eyes. Yeah. This is what's going to happen to us. It's going to happen to us. We have parasocial relationships in our life now. There are listeners that are going to show up to Magic 30 – that we have never met, but they feel like they probably know us very well. Do you? How does that make you feel? It makes me feel like a D-list celebrity. What it makes me feel like. See, because I like to reverse what you just described. How you heard this guy say your name on stream and it gave you a little thrill. Because sometimes I meet people and they give me a funny look. Like I've had this experience several times. They're like, oh my gosh, I was just listening to you in my car and I got out and now you here you are. That's That has never happened to me outside of like my siblings and my parents. And that's totally different. Yeah, I, I I get that experience sometimes. I got I, there's one enlisted guy that I work with that I think listens to every episode, and every now and then he'll come in and he'll kind of give me a look, and I can tell he listened to the last episode. He wants to talk to me about it, but he doesn't. <laughs> but that's not his place. He's not your friend. Uh, but I feel like his friend. I feel, see. Of course, you feel like this his is the friend. point. You're this ben. is the point I'm going to make. I feel like it's reciprocal. I value. Our listeners, I think that the the connection they're feeling with us is real because it's based on the values of this podcast, on curiosity, on admitting your weaknesses, on enjoying gaming. And anyone that listens to us and likes those things, I feel a connection with them. Any listeners that are hearing my voice that are planning on coming to Magic 30, I'm going to be skittish around you at first. I'm going to be <laughs> like an antelope in the wild, wary of your presence. Now, when we... Uh, the longer time that we are in each other's proximity and probably the more alcohol I consume in your presence, I will be more relaxed. <laughs> All right. <laughs> you, Josh, you reminded me of an experience I had this last week. So my local gaming store held a uh, 1K Magic tournament that was a modern uh, mo uh, modern tournament where we were playing best of three matches for $1,000 in cash prizes. Ooh. Um and I'm usually in contention in these things, uh, but I had a weird experience. So after the COVID quarantine, Wizards of the Coast released a new device to uh, released a new software application to replace a legacy one called Event Reporter or something like that. It was basically this legacy system that they use for taking a big group full a big room full of nerds and matching them up in a way that generates a tournament structure that spits out a winner at the end. And there were problems with it and some really high-profile failures of the software that caused horrible logistical nightmares where they were trying to reconstruct, you know, five rounds of tournament oh. results from scratch and people staying till four in the morning and just stupid stuff like that. So they released this new thing that's called, um, oh, what, what is the software called? Magic, uh, 
needs to be like companion, companion mtg companion yeah anyway it's pretty good it just sits on your device and it does a lot of things the old system couldn't do it'll give you individual notifications you can see your standings you can see your opponent's name it even offers a few conveniences like a life counter and stuff like that so it's been long enough that I've started to rely on it. Whereas before you used to kind of stand around, wait for the next round to start, and then look at a paper with your name on it. This case, I wasn't. Let, so we. Let, sorry, I have to cut you off here. Listeners, imagine for a moment a room full of 10,000 nerds, only half of them having showered in the last 24 hours, <laughs> all crowding around one printout from a dot matrix printer to try to find their name next to a number, and the font is like size 10. So you have to be yeah. right in front of it, and you have to put your finger on it before you have any chance of finding it. This was the magic of yesteryear, and it sucked. It did. So this is a quantum leap forward, and it's an example of other technologies that we already have and trust. We do this in other areas of our life. You know, your your bank account, your cell phone provider, your app that you use at your favorite retail outlet, those kinds of things. So we've already started to have our trust on our digital devices. And that is where I went wrong at this magic tournament. <laughs> so it was the third round of play. And there was two or three events going on in this place where my son and I were. And we went to the opposite side of the room and sat down in some comfortable padded chairs with our backs to the event that we were participating in. And then a judge comes up and taps me on the shoulder and says, are you still playing? And I'm like, yeah. And he points to the clock on the wall, and it's already four minutes into the next round of the tournament. And I look at my device, and it hasn't notified me of my pair up with my opponent and that the round has started. So I go to my seat, and the judge has already issued me a game loss. Oh, because you were late. And I was in line of sight of my opponent. But I didn't hear them start the round, and I was relying on my digital device to notify me of the tournament to start. So I can't really say it wasn't my fault because I was in the room and I should have known. But the fact that I was relying on the software meant that I wasn't being vigilant and it cost me a game. That's a bummer. So I lost the next game and I went into the loser's bracket. Luckily, I still won enough that I qualified for top eight and won some of the prizes that's neither here nor there. The point I wanted to make was that my reliance on this digital device was only as good as its reliability. And then when it failed, the accountability came back on me instead of on the device. Makes sense. Like it, it, that wasn't accepted as an excuse. Okay. I mean, that's and it's valid. Yeah. So I'm wondering when we'll get past that. Where, where they'll be like, oh, okay, well then we'll take back the game loss that we issued you because we recognize that the device is reliable enough that it's... I don't know. No, don't no, know. take it to the next step. At what point does my device become so good that I don't have any responsibility for my actions anymore? Ah, I guess that's what I was saying. Yeah, that's not a thing. We're not going to get there, and good Lord, I hope we never do. Can you imagine a world where there's no responsibility? It's like, oh, sorry, my self-driving car failed, and I was on my phone texting, so I didn't drive, and I crashed into your kid. My bad. Or not my bad. Yeah. It's my phone's bad. My car's bad. Not my fault. Okay, that's a good example, because there's going to be a point where we don't get in the front seat anymore. Mm-hmm. And then it isn't your, then you aren't accountable anymore. Oof. Man, I put myself into this corner, didn't I? Yeah. Uh, all right, to be continued, I don't want to answer that on the spot. <laughs> all right. I got another quick story I want to tell you, and then we'll transition to our bad ads. So this week, I got notified by the Air Force that I was due for my annual dental checkup. <laughs> Basically, I know this is weird, people. If you're listening to this, you don't think about this with the Army and the Air Force and the Navy and the Marines and stuff. But basically, if you have a soldier and he's down 
range fighting and he gets a toothache, he can't fight as well. So the Air Force <laughs> and all the other branches have found that they have to set up a separate pr- procedure to annually certify your dental readiness. It's the same reason that private insurance companies like give you your, your annual physicals and checkups for free or your annual cleanings for free because the preventative care saves them money in the long run. It has nothing to do with their effectiveness downrange. It's all yes. about saving money, man. Come on, Josh. If they deploy me and I get a toothache and then I, you know, they don't have the right resources and they got to send me back and it impacts the mission, there is a readiness component to this. They send dentists downrange all the time. I know. So I went in for my annual, t- my, and because I'd been up for an hour and a half because of I teach seminary, I got to the parking lot. It was like 730 and they weren't even open yet. So I kind of sat there for a car in my minute, in my car for a minute, and then I dozed off. Well, how do you? <laughs> I, I was just sitting there waiting for the clinic to open. I fell asleep. Ben, I have frequently fallen asleep in my car waiting for something to open in these same kinds of circumstances. But how do you not set an alarm on your phone? I, I just, I, because I didn't intend to doze off. When I worked so, in the military, I had an alarm on my phone for every half hour to make sure I didn't fall asleep randomly throughout the day. <laughs> you did what? I did not. That's that's okay. that's just a joke. Uh, so so the phone rings at 10 past 8, and they're like, you were supposed to be here 10 minutes ago for your appointment. I'm like, I'm just in the parking lot. I'll be in in a sec. So I stood up, walked in, checked in, and they had me in the seat by, 15, I was 15 minutes late, basically. I don't know if this has rattled my, you know, my junior enlisted uh, dental tech or not, but um, she just gets started. So I'm sitting there in the chair and she's taking the x-rays and she's doing weird stuff that I didn't expect, um, but I'm just quietly complying as you do. Okay. And she gets to the point where she's transitioning from the x-rays and the prep to my annual cleaning, like you said, the free preventive maintenance. And I'm like, hang on, before you start this, I have a couple of painful canker sores. Can I get you to apply some topical numbing agent to it, some kind of anesthetic, before you start digging around in my mouth with the cleaning stuff? Oh, I'm sorry. I thought we were in the military. No! <laughs> Shut up and open your mouth. Yeah, well, that's what that's what a person... Yes. Yes. Um, and she's like, uh, sir, I can't do that without permission from a dentist. And I'm like, Why? Why can't you just do something easy to... I, I don't remember what my exact words were, and it's kind of important, so let me try to represent it. Be like, what do you need permission for? And then she got quiet, and she walked away. And I sat there for one, <laughs> two, five, and then ten minutes, and I'm starting to wonder what's going on. And <laughs> I'll tell you what's going on. All Is right, this- I, I want to hear, hear what you think was going on. <laughs> she went to the tech sergeant. The tech sergeant went to the mass sergeant. Mass sergeant went to the LT. LT went to the captain. Captain went to the major. And the major said, what's this guy's rank? Major? And then he went to the lieutenant colonel and said, hey, LTC, come down here and yell at this idiot for us. So that's kind of what happened, but it stopped at a captain. <laughs> so a captain comes into the office, and he's obviously perturbed, which is weird because I wasn't expecting it. I got to say, I did, based on her and I's short interaction where I said, I think, two things to her, and she said one thing back, I didn't expect that a crisis was brewing. I was just laying in there in the chair waiting what was wondering so long. What, you, what, you're, not, Taking what so you're failing to recognize in this situation is you're already on two strikes. Before you even said anything, yeah, you're on yeah. two strikes. You showed up late, so you're already in the bad graces. Uh-huh. You're in the bad book. And then yep. uh, like any enlisted guy that shows up late gets a call back to his supervisor. Right, like, to hey, his first sergeant. Yeah, he yeah. was late for his appointment. You need to yell at this guy. And then number two, you opened your mouth. Like you said words to this person who's right. just trying to do their right, job. Right. Like how right. dare you? Those are, my two, those are my two strikes. So as soon as he starts talking to me, I realized that something went wrong. 
And I wasn't thinking that. He's like, <laughs> and he's, I think he said kind of what you said. First of all, you're late. And second of all, you're talking back to my tech. And so, and then they went straight into the punitive stuff without even asking my side of the story. And so you're not going to get your cleaning today. Denson's coming here and check you out. And you're going to have to schedule that. And you're going to come back. Which is probably fair considering I was late. <laughs> so petty. So and, and petty says, and vindictive. He says, and now she's in the back room crying and I have to figure out what else to do. I'm like, what? He said, she's crying. I'm like, that was a really short conversation. I didn't even raise my voice. I just asked her why she needed approval for uh, to, to put some numbing agent on my canker sore. And, this- and he got this look on his face where he realized that he hadn't been told the whole story. Oh, gosh. And he kind of went, oh, let me see it. And I showed him the canker sore and he goes, ooh, that's really bad. Yeah, I'd want some numbing on that before I started getting it cleaning too. <laughs> <laughs> so you, Major Ben Rich yelled at some, yelled at, like it, in air quotes, airman. at some 18-year-old. Yeah, yeah. So I'm, nine, rank, I'm nine ranks above her. I say one thing to her and she just goes into meltdown mode. And it made me feel like I can't say anything. Like if that had been a civilian uh, cleaner provider, she'd have done like you did. She'd either done something about it and had the power to do it, or she would have told me to shut up and take it. Ben, I was when I was at the academy, I was having somebody operate on my foot. I say operate. Like I had an ingrown toenail, and they had to take a pair of scissors oh, yeah. and cut That's my That's an operation. They had to cut my – It's an outpatient it, operation. To, it's an operation. They had to cut my toenail in half and then rip it out with a pair of pliers. And they were having some, like, uh, he was a senior student that was a biology major. He's going to go into medicine. Like, they're having him do it to try to teach him something. And so there's this idiot who's a year older than I am trying to do this this medical procedure on my foot with, a, a, with, like, some enlisted guy that actually knows what he's doing, like, looking over his shoulder. And I'm, meantime, meanwhile, I'm in excruciating pain because the numbing agent is all worn off because he's taking freaking forever. And then I got yelled at by the major that came in to supervise the tech sergeant supervising the guy. And I'm like writhing in pain and pulling my hair out. I'm like, can you apply more anesthetic or something? I'm in a lot of pain. And the major's like, hey, you need to settle down. You're going to get a medical procedure done and they're doing some training. You just need to suck it up and take this. And that was my response. Like that's what they they told me to do. Yeah. That's a good example of misaligned incentives. The, when we exist in these spaces, we're just a cog in the military machine. We're not there as a customer in a medical service provider. Where, whatever happened to first do no harm? Do dentists not take that one? <laughs> Apparently not. So I made her cry, and it was bugging me all day because she never came back. I didn't get a chance to apologize to her. They just kind of kicked me unceremoniously out of the clinic. <laughs> so later that afternoon, I had a... Um, physical therapy appointment for a shoulder injury I sustained a decade ago. And I was getting worked on by the civilian um, physical therapy tech. And I kind of told her the story offhanded. And she's like, yeah, I see how that happened. I'm like, well, what do you think I should do? She's like, you really want to know? I'm like, yeah. She's like, go down to go down to Subway, get a $5 gift card, drop it off at the front desk at the dental clinic with their name on it. Oh. And I'm like, yeah, that sounds nice. So immediately after that appointment, I went down to the the BX food court and got a gift certificate and went to the dental service front counter. And I was talking to the the person that handles the appointments. And I I said, hey, uh, I had an appointment here this morning. I had a um, cleaning tech. I can't remember her name. Could you look up her name? And she's like, yeah, why? I'm like, well, I just I need, I need to know it. And I was holding my pen in my... <laughs> because I'm going to call her on the giant voice to make her stand in attention in front of a flagpole while I yell at her in the rain. That's why. <laughs> 
So she she kind of grudgingly um, looks up the information, reads it off to me, and I write it down. And then she kind of looks at me expectantly, and I'm like, here, could you give this to her? And I hand it to her, and it's obvious what it is. And she goes, ah, that's so nice. And then she took it, and I left, and that's the end. I don't know what happened after that. Only Ben Rich. Only Ben Rich can get screwed over by the dental clinic. And, and and somehow turn it into this like oh and then I gave them a present and now I feel better like <laughs> like I do feel better oh the dental clinic screwed me. I didn't want to ruin that girl's day oh the dental clinic screwed me over so I, I was so tired? I bought them a sandwich like are you listening to yourself oh my gosh all right it is time for bad at whatever you're going to talk about <laughs> next all right so this is this is definitely bad at parenting. All right, Ben. So frequent listeners may know I have a seven-year-old daughter. Okay. And in my experience thus far, daughters are far more complicated to raise than sons are. You have an admittedly small sample size, but yes, go ahead. I have an admittedly small sample size. Does this carry true? Oh, Mr. Triple my sample size? <laughs> I also have a small sample size, so I have I cannot make a valid assessment of what that question. Okay, now I'm stopping everything we're talking about. We're going to talk about this instead. Ben, you have six children. Who on earth has a larger sample size that would that would suit your statistical criteria? Okay, th- there's a great internet meme I have for this. Uh, I forget. I don't know what show it's from, but it's like a two panel comic. He's like four is not if. if is four a large number? It depends on what we're talking about. Murders, yes. Dollars, <laughs> four is a no. large number. Yeah. I've seen that meme, and that's a good one. Okay, so, go ahead. I have two children at admittedly small sample size for my asterisk for all my statisticians out there, including my co-host, apparently. Mm-hmm. Anyway, my daughter Jane, um, we have a full schedule for our kids. We try to keep them active. Like we wanted them to experience a bunch of different things so they can decide and have an informed decision making later in life about what they want to do and how they want to spend their time. And one of the things that we are doing currently is we have a tennis class. And so once a week I take both of my kids and they do tennis drills and learn from a coach for an hour down at our community center. Wow. And I, I sit there in the heat in a folding chair and I typically study for my CPA exam and wait for it to be over. But this time I couldn't sit there and just politely let my brain wander as time elapsed because my daughter decided to be a total snot. And Uh just there's a bunch in the way that seven year olds do in the way that seven year olds do. Like, for example, like I probably said on this podcast before, I keep telling her talk less, listen more. This is the thing. Like you're going to a practice. Like, there is a coach. That coach is not there for you. You are not the only person on this planet. There are a bunch of other kids that need to learn from this coach. So every time that you stop this coach for one of your inane comments, questions, or observations, <laughs> like, you are holding up the whole production for everybody, and that's not fair to everyone else. So keep your mouth shut, do what they tell you, and try to learn something. Like, that's what I'm trying to, like, it's not about okay. you, that, you That's one. a good ethic. I think the opposite ethic is also useful, but at the right time and place. Uh, <laughs> it's a it's a it's a recurring theme and a recurring problem, which is why I'm trying to hammer it. Yes. Also, later I had to stop multiple times from my studying because I distinctly heard the way that parents do. I picked my child's voice out of the crowd of children saying something that she's not supposed to be saying, like in a tone, like like yelling at her at her brother, like stop it, Carter, like in a tone that is audible to everyone there. And I'm not the, I, I don't let, I don't let my kids do that kind of stuff. Can I have a wise old parent moment with you, Josh? Sure, please do. If you're feeling self-conscious about your daughter, uh, you know, playing 
whatever the slappy game with with her brother in the middle of this tennis practice because you think all the other parents and the coach are cognizant of this and it's embarrassing to you they're not oh i'm aware no no no. hang on hang on that's that's they're not let's be clear it's not that bad let's be clear i'm not upset at her because she's embarrassing me in front of other parents i'm upset at her because this is inappropriate behavior at any time Okay. Okay. Go ahead. Go ahead with your story. So she's so she's being a snot. She's being a snot. So I had to call her over and be like, "Hey, stop messing with your brother. Stop distracting the coach. Stop talking. I don't want to hear you speak again this entire practice. I want you to listen and learn and do the things that you're supposed to do." Okay. Yes. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? Yes. What am I saying to you? Talk less. Listen more. Thank you. <laughs> Go back to the practice. And then she did it again. There was another time where she started yelling some inane nonsense, distracting everybody. And I had to like the coach had to stop and turn to acknowledge the things that my daughter is saying in the middle of a drill. So like the production is completely shut down because I my, got it. Re- record scratch. Everybody turns their focus to your daughter because she's like, oh, look at that cloud. There was lightning. I saw lightning. It was so pretty. It was right over there. And I'm just like, and I had to speak up over her Aww. from the sidelines. Jane. Focus. There's part of me that is like, Josh, it's beautiful. <laughs> it's just a moment. Just chill. Okay, so here's the problem, Ben. This is where the bad of parenting comes in, okay? Because okay. I'm not going to, like, like pull her off the court by the scuff of her neck and, like, shake her like a rag doll. That, that, that's not appropriate. Yeah. So I wait until we get in the car, and I wait until we get home, and then I sit her down by herself, and I'm like, I am upset with you, and these are the reasons why. And then I explain the things, and it's like, and, and every time, everything I said something is like, it's like you were yelling at Carter when I told you not to be doing anything. And she's like, yeah, but. I'm like, you need to stop talking back to me and yeah, butting. Like, I know you have an explanation because in Jane's world, there's an explanation for everything. I don't care. I am telling you what is acceptable and what is not. What you did is unacceptable regardless of the circumstances involved with it. And like, so do you remember when you were a kid and you were on the other end of that and it felt like all of your excuses were so important? Yes. Yes, I do, Ben. But here's the thing. As a wiser, older person, I realize now that I am not the center of the universe. And all of those reasons I had as a kid were unjustified. And so the sooner that I can drill that fact into her head, the better. All of this is not pertinent to the story. Here's the story that I want to tell is I gave my daughter a scalding lecture about how she was supposed to be acting and behaving as a person for a good five minutes, okay? Uh And she did all the things that I expected her to do in that time. She got really sad. She had like a single tear drip down her cheek and gave all the physical impressions that she was hearing and that she was uh, uh, emotionally disturbed enough that this was inflicting upon her pain centers, which would then reinforce the lessons that that I'm delivering to her, right? Yeah. And then I stopped and I went to start cooking dinner. And like five minutes later, she's bouncing off the wall super happy and just just like nothing had ever happened again. Well, how long would have been acceptable to that's you? The, that's the question. Am I, am I a bad parent because I was slightly miffed that my daughter – like got over it so fast yes, i'm over here i was i was looking at her having fun again and thinking to myself is she not listening is she was she fooling me am i the patsy in this discussion like there's there's a classic farside comic where there's two devils that are supervising the people the souls that have been consigned to hell and there's one guy that's pushing a wheelbarrow full of brimstone and one devil and, and he's whistling as he's pushing the wheelbarrow, one devil leans over to the other devil and says, I just don't think we're getting through to that guy. <laughs> yes. Yes. Thank you. This is exactly what I'm trying to illustrate. Like, I'm over here. Like, 
am I a jerk because I feel like she's happy again way faster than she should be and I feel like I'm not getting through to her? Does that make – is am I a jerk because I want her to feel bad for longer? <sighs> You're talking to the guy who used to get in trouble for smiling in basic training. <laughs> oh. Of course, of course, you like, were that guy. They're like, you're supposed to be miserable. And I'm like, yeah, but you're kind of funny right now. <laughs> yeah, but this is by far the least stressful thing that I've ever experienced, Try having wife and kids. <laughs> it's not that bad. <laughs> Sir, may I make a statement? Sir, a three-year-old in the middle of the night is way worse than anything you can dish out. Yeah, that was kind of how I felt. I don't know. I don't know, Josh. I, I Here's the thing. Here's my wise parent moment to you. The thing, the fact that she was able to repeat your slogan back to you means that it's in there rattling around. <laughs> you don't get to pick the moment when it's going to take effect, but it will. Oh, Ben. Oh, damn it, man. That is, that is hilarious and also very profound. You're right. The fact that she knows what I was going to say to her, you're right. It's in there somewhere. Eventually, it's, it's ricocheting inside of her skull. Maybe someday it'll hit the brain cells that it needs to stick to. Yep, it will. It will. I've, all of my kids have had those moments, and they come back to me and they're like, Dad. And they tell me about the slogan or the thing or the lesson. And I didn't get to pick the time. They picked the time, but it's still in there. That's You got it in okay, there. Okay, Ben, that's actually profoundly wise. I'm, 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 I'm genuinely like awed at the <laughs> wisdom that you just gave us. You can give them the information, but you don't get to pick the time that it applies. Wow, that's actually really good. Yeah. It is time for Bad at Logic. So I'm going to make this one quick here in our critical thinking cards because it's an even episode. I have selected the fallacy of anecdotal. Uh, no, wait, I don't do fallacies. I do bi- No, you do biases. I do biases. Okay. You do fallacies. All right. This is the anecdotal fallacy. This one's pretty simple. I think we've already used it several times this episode. Using personal experience or an isolated example instead of a valid argument, especially to dismiss statistics. Do you know what's really this is funny? A great example. It is a great example. Do you know what's really funny about anecdotes, Ben? What's that? Is that they reinforce your position, but they only ever happen to you once. Like people come at you with an anecdote, like, oh, well, this is a tried and true thing. Really? Give me an example. It's like they say, oh, well, it's this thing happened to me just the other day. That's great. Give me 10 more examples. And then they can't, and yeah. they're stumped, and they don't understand why. Like, now I'm the jerk because I'm saying, like, your one time in your anecdote does not equate to correlation or causation. The one that comes to mind for me is back in the 80s, it felt like the jury was still out on if if tobacco was going to kill you. And I remember (laughs) hearing people debate about smoking, and they would always give the example of George Burns, who was a very prominent actor who who lived to the age of 100 and was known for just being a chain smoker. Like, whenever he was seen on screen or in public, he was holding a cigar and smoking it. So this was this anecdotal evidence that smoking doesn't kill you. No, it can't kill you because it hasn't killed that guy. Since since that time, George Burns has since died. The evidence has held true, and smoking has declined precipitously in the United States of America. So we are we can't overcome the anecdotal bias, but we are a bit prone to it sometimes. This is true. Be aware, people. When pe- then somebody tries to give you an anecdote as evidence, ask them for five more examples, and then watch them flounder. It's one of the funniest things that you can do. It doesn't mean that anecdotes can't uphold data, but it, you can't use an anecdote in place of data. <laughs> you ever see the show Brooklyn Nine-Nine? Yeah. There was one episode they did a cross-promotion with uh, the new girl. 
And I don't remember the exact, I've seen too many memes of this exact moment that happened in the episode, but it was Peralta, uh, Andy Samberg running up to the car and it was the new girl star that was driving it. And he was like, move over, police business. I need, or and he said something like, uh, I'm a French historian or something. I need to use your car. And she goes, oh, you're a French historian? Name 15 French kings. And then he goes, Louis. And she goes, oh yeah, that's my bad. I set the bar too low. <laughs> there were 15 Louis. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's the only time, awesome. like when you're anecdotal evidence. Like sometimes there are going to be enough anecdotes. Sometimes you just get lucky and rattle off all the anecdotes. <laughs> all right, for bad English, uh, I want to use a word I'd only ever heard used as a noun get used as a verb. Oh, so sometimes I'd encounter a subset of British English that was simply military slang, and this one was the word beast. Uh, I was speaking to one of my British friends and he talked about beasting or we beasted or we're going to beast that. And and it turns out that it's military slang, uh, British military slang, that means to punish or torture someone in a manner that involves excessive physical exercise. <laughs> so that was the new meaning of the word beast I'd never heard before. Well, when I went to the academy, they called our basic training, basic cadet training of all things, BCT, and it was just called beast. It was split into oh. two three-week sections, first and second beast, and that's just what— That's a whole different thing, though. That's that weird thing we do where we pronounce acronyms. Yeah, but it was kind of the same thing. It was hazing through intense physical punishment. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So for our main segment today, Josh, you had— you Okay, I want to take, an, I want to take a detour immediately. <laughs> Before Josh, we even I have start. got to know— on the record, what made you install TikTok on your phone and why are you still <laughs> using it? This is neither here nor there, sir. Yeah, I know it's not, and I still want to know. <laughs> okay, okay. Because I, I still haven't. So but... I don't know what caused this, the, the first step. The first step was my wife installed it on her phone, Okay. And I don't know why she did. To this day, I don't know why. I think she was just seeing things on on uh, Twitter or whatever. Like, she has her social medias that she goes through. And one of them required her to install TikTok for a second. And then she just kept it. But then, like, for... It was like two days. She was showing me these hilarious tiny videos that were just... They're like snacks. They're so delicious. And they're so <laughs> short. And they're easy to consume. <laughs> and they're bad for you. And like she would just show them to me. I'm like, these are the best. Those are delicious snacks. I want some of those too. <laughs> and she showed me one that I thought it was it was like 15 seconds long. It was a parody on a song, and it was so hilarious that I'm like, I'm going to download this app, install it on my phone, and you are going to I'm going to create a profile, and you are going to send me a link to that thing so I can save it and have it forever. And then I have had it since then. Uh, the, okay. the first week I had it, I probably used it way too much, and now it's gone down to. I'm, I'm I always default back to Reddit to to swipe through, but if I have like five minutes or something, and I just want my brain to be turned off and be dumbly entertained. I will open TikTok. Okay, so every social media app has some version of of the the core killer technology, which is it has some way of accepting input from you the user for what your preferences are and then it applies some kind of artificial intelligence algorithm to spit back out similar things that you might also enjoy so that it keeps you engaged 
So I'm told by younger generations that I said, oh, I'm, I'm doing TikTok. And they corrected me. It's like, you're, you're not doing TikTok. You're looking at TikTok or whatever. And they were explaining to me all of these things. I'm TikTok. I'm TikToking. Look how old I am. But they were saying that, yes, there's an algorithm that talks about who you follow, what videos you like. And not only that, but then also it has access to your microphone that apparently I gave it permission to. And so it, what? it listens to my reactions. Don't you believe the Chinese conspiracy theories? Uh, I, all right. So I believe that we should like I, I believe a lot of things that don't jive with each other very well. But one of the things <laughs> I get that this looks to be inconsistent. I get that this looks to be inconsistent and it probably is. But here's the thing, Ben. I've just accepted that corporations have all of my data all of the time. I'm, I'm, okay. I'm just not I'm not going to fight it anymore. If it, but that's the thing I love about you, Josh. You aren't in denial of these things. You just find a way to come to peace with it. <laughs> listen, if my phone needs to listen to every word I say in order to better inform the algorithm that gives me funny and or TikToks that I like, then so be it. Uh, <laughs> awesome. Okay, so that can bring us to this one. So you saw a TikTok that had come out back in, uh, I want to say, April time frame, and it kind of went viral and it created a trend. Uh, I think it was by a guy by the name of Zaid Khan. Well, and it's um, a, it's a bunch of them now. Like it turned into yes, this yes. Of course, thing. it started a trend. But as as with any trend, you try to trace it back to the the root. Oh, is that what you did? Yes. Yeah, you know, I just jumped on the giant wave of the trend and then actually started doing some more diligent research outside of TikTok because Good. shockingly, TikTok's not the best source of information. Yeah. So Zaid Khan says, I recently learned about this term called quiet quitting where you're not outright quitting your job, but you're quitting the idea of going above and beyond. You're still performing your duties, but you're no longer subscribing to the hustle culture mentally that work has to be our life. Is that what we're talking about today? We are talking about quiet quitting. And uh, right. because I like this idea because it's so multifaceted and it's honestly one of the things before quiet quitting was a term, I kind of talked about this idea when I was still in the military. And like it's so pertinent to so many different industries. Like this has to. Yeah, I'm getting too far into it. Yeah, but the idea here is that quiet quitting is not you're not actually quitting. You're not quitting your job. You're not you're not performing so poorly that you're going to get fired. You're not pulling the guy from office space where you're doing absolutely nothing and just waiting for them to fire you. That's not what quiet quitting is. What quiet quitting actually is is going back and reading the job description for the position that you were hired for and doing exactly that and not one iota more. Okay, so I learned about this, and this has existed for a long time in the space of, of um, organized labor. Okay. Unions and whatnot. Union, unions. Okay. Basically, it's, a, it's kind of like a lesser version of striking. We're striking you, stop working altogether. This in union parlance is called work to rule. Okay. You learn exactly what it is you're supposed to be doing and do that and not an iota more. Okay. And it will market, if you have a big enough group of people do it on purpose, it will markedly impact the productivity of the company. Right. And that's kind of where we're getting at is the idea that for some reason over time this has evolved. And I saw uh, – it's another TikToker guy that was talking about this. He's an HR professional, and he talked about how this doesn't really impact small business. If you run a small business, you have a handful of employees. Those employees, like when they're hired, they kind of know. 
and you probably told them like what's expected. Like we're going to need you to do a bunch of different things that I can't specifically list because there's only four of us in this building. But uh, apparently it's really, really bad for corporate culture. Like the larger the organization is, the worse it gets as far as these are the things that we need you to do. And then everything else that we can milk out of you is just going to be gravy for us. Kind of. I mean, do you think that the employment contract should be such that you only ever you have an exact list of everything your duties are and you never do anything that isn't on that list and you come to an agreement up front? I'm going to flip this around you, Ben. You have a duty title and a position that has clearly defined quantifiable like things that you are supposed to be responsible for and doing. But one of the core values of the Air Force is service before self. It is built into the culture of the organization that you will go above and beyond at every possible opportunity to make the the, the service as a whole better. Yeah, that one almost feels kind of like uh, camaraderie. <laughs> you know, saluting the hammer and the sickle. Well, this is this is the thing that like I mentioned earlier. Like I was I was preaching about this long before I knew it was a term. Like in the military, I talked about like they build this culture and they build this camaraderie and this esprit de corps and all these things that they talk about in the military specifically because they are wanting you to invest emotionally, not just professionally, but like this is your family. This is where you live. This is what you do. This is who you are. And I have a, they want more out of you than they are ever willing or capable of paying you for. So there was something that happened back in the 80s where they did, quote unquote, professionalize the force, where instead of conscripting people and bringing them into the force involuntarily and ordering them around, a la what you expect from like basic training in military movies to more of like you're a professional, we'll pay you a wage comparable to what someone on the outside does that's doing your job. And we expect you to do it out of a sense of professionalism rather than out of a sense of threat of violence, which is kind of what it is in, you know, when you conscript a troop into a military. I mean, that's all true. And they can say that they professionalize the force all they want. But the force, the 100 percent of the time that I was in was at was post professional force. And there is not an employer on the planet that can call you on a Saturday morning at 5 a.m. and say, hey, come give us your pee. Right. Well, I've been I've been employed by companies that make you subject to uh, drug tests at a moment's notice before. That's not unique to the military. Not not, not outside of working hours, not on a weekend. I got it. (laughs) So. The military has what's called the Uniform Code of Military Justice that is kind of the, the side rules that go above and beyond our constitutional freedoms because of the uniqueness of the profession of arms. Okay. You know, I, I know you know this. Like, the, it, it's kind of expected that in a non-military profession, your employer doesn't have the right to ask you to do anything that would endanger your personal health and safety. Right. And that it's their obligation, even if they're asking you to do something that's inherently dangerous, to take all due diligence to provide it in such a way that the, that you're safe. If you have to climb a tall tower, they should provide you know training and hard hats and safety harnesses and ver- and you know go through a process of validating all those things so that you're not taking unreasonable risk to life or limb. But the military has to do things that inherently risk your life or limb that cannot be reduced below an acceptable level. Which is true, but it's also an anecdote. Ben, how many times in your 
storied and long military career has your life actually been on the line? So uh, I like that you went here, and I think this is the important point to be made. It is the professionalism of the force. We have transformed, and I wrote a whole paper about this, link in the show notes. Uh, We have transformed from the legacy definition of war where objectives are achieved by the by um attrition of human lives okay to where we have abstracted that away mostly with technology and now we've become a professional force where we abhor avoid and even don't accept the loss of life in the achievement of objectives and then we become much more like you said where now we're just like that guy on office space that said mm, yeah i'm gonna need you to come in on saturday yeah so all right why, why is having you come in for a few extras on hours on Saturday any different from charge that hill even though there's a, a machine gun turret at the top of it firing down on you? I like your question, but before I address it, I have to point this out. How is it that I pick the topic and you're still more educated on it than I am? Like you're better prepared for this than I am, and I actually like did went out of my way to read about it. God. I told you I wrote a paper on I, this. Somehow you're still better prepared than I am. I hate God, you're the perfect person. I hate it. <laughs> Okay, so to get back to your to your topic, like this is the, that's that's the idea is the military is asking you for more than they're paying you for, like flat out. Yes. Period. Dot. End of discussion. They are, yes. and that's built yes. into the system. And what you're trying to justify is that, like, oh well, it's fine for the military because we do things that are different than the civilian world is what it sounds like. Yes. Inherently, we call it the unlimited liability clause, what I, which could include giving your life, but may also include working on a Saturday. Which is absolutely true, and I'm not dis, dis um, I'm not rejecting your argument or your question. But what I am saying is, how many people does that actually apply to? It doesn't apply to you. It has probably never applied to you. So why do you still pour in so much more of yourself into the service? than somebody else like it it makes sense that so i acknowledge i acknowledge that i um am playing the devil's advocate here (laughs) and i'm gonna i'm gonna stop resisting quite so much and 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 say yes there are a lot of aspects of what i do as a professional employed in an organization where i do it uh it service providing for an organization that conducts a mission where data is important and a lot of what I do falls into these very same spaces in the professional place that are that have at its heart the same kind of conditions that led to this trend of quiet quitting. Well, here's the thing. The reason that I'm I'm poking you specifically, the reason I'm poking the military specifically is because uh, I have a different perspective on this. Is because my wife and I were both in the military for many years, and then we both separated and transitioned into the civilian world. And without a doubt, hands down, Every time what we have both discovered is every job that we have ever had, we put way more into it than anybody else that's there because that's just the, set, the expectation. That's just the the level that we've been set to. Like our entire professional lives, both of us, our first professional job was in the military. And so it was just like this is the expectation of what you do when you work at a job. That's kind of fascinating to me because also in the military, we have this weird ethic where we uphold the private sector as inherently more efficient than we are. Well, they they are hands down way more efficient than you are because they don't have these. There's a lot of reasons why, but it comes down to money. So what's the cause for the discrepancy between the amount of effort and the amount of productivity? Uh, Is it just efficiency? Well, it's effort and productivity aren't 
aren't related like they're they're connected and they're correlated but like a person can put in a ton of effort and be terribly not productive like that's an individual yeah. statistic to translate from one to the other but what i'm talking about my wife and i like not to blow our own horns but we are very productive and very uh put in a lot of effort and it, her more than me like like she has such ridiculous loyalty like it, it physically hurts her to try to move from one position or one job to another because she has so much she feels like she's abandoning yes people. she has so much emotional attachment to like the programs okay. and the projects and the things but that that's a holdover a carryover from this culture of the military instills in us to make us put more effort into the organization than they deserve so i'm going to ask you a question to, to nicole by proxy i hope you can answer it and that is is that out of a loyalty to her coworkers and the relationships she's developed with them or is that out of a loyalty to the mission of the organization uh, I'm not going to answer on her behalf because I'll get it wrong, I'm sure. Hmm. But the the key there is there's loyalty. Like there is loyalty that that because I feel like those are two different things. They're not mutually exclusive, but they're both part of the equation. Well, it's a, but it's it all comes down to that loyalty factor, right? Like uh, the current job that I am in, I I feel like I'm reaching a point where I'm outgrowing it. Like I, oh, my goal, and I'm going to knock on wood here, like within the next calendar year, I will have outgrown the position that I am in to the point where I will need to seek other opportunities. Okay. Yeah. That's my hope and my goal and my expectation. But at the same time, I can't help but feel disloyal to the, this tiny little accounting firm that gave me my, my start because like, I, I know what's going to happen when I leave and I'm going to leave them with all of this extra work. And all of the the stuff that I do on a regular basis is going to be left there for them to handle. And I feel genuinely bad. Like I have anxiety about doing that to these people. Don't you think that it can just be, I don't know, an acknowledgement of your growth that they can just wish you well and take on the work or hire a new person and, and just cope with the consequences of you leaving, but recognize that you've outgrown the organization and it just be beneficial to well, everyone. Well, let's be clear. I'm still like, if given the opportunity, I'm going to do it because that's going to be better right. for, for me and my family. I get it. But I, yeah, was, just recognizing that you've worked really hard and that it will be difficult to replace you. Yes. And it's going to make me feel bad to leave them like holding that back. But that, that's a carryover from this military tradition that was drummed into me since I graduated from high school. And so hmm. like this – when this quiet quitting came across my, my, my plate as like this, this very nebulous idea that I've had for a long time boiled down to a nice key phrase and like these are the things that define that and then people are actually starting to have conversations about it. I was immediately fascinated by the concept. So so wrap it up in a tidy package. What is it you consider it to be? Is it actually about quitting or is that just alliteration? So it, there's two different perspectives here. There's the perspective of the employee and the perspective of the perspective of the employer. From the employee's perspective, quiet quitting is setting healthy boundaries uh, with your employer to make sure that they're not infringing over much on your personal life. Okay. So the idea of like unpaid overtime or like, hey, like we know you get off at five, but we're going to start this meeting at 430 and might roll long. Like that's not that's the employer not respecting your time and not paying you the extra compensation knowingly that they're going to hold you over time. Uh, from the employer's perspective, and this was that second TikTok I was talking about, this HR professional was very interesting because from the employer's perspective, large corporations would his hypothesis was they would come to a grinding halt if all of their employees quiet quit at the same time because it's yes. almost become common like employment 
culture, like HR programs almost, like in, just built into the system that when you hire somebody, yes, you have a bulleted list of these are the things that we want you to do, but there's also this hidden implied list of all the stuff that we expect you to do as a yes. part of this job. I read some specific examples like like uh, school teachers, you know, doing lesson planning after hours or nurses answering telephones or those kinds of things that if they just stopped doing them, it would actually bring the whole organization to a halt. Yes. And so from the employer's perspective, they are very uh, incentivized to not quash this, but kind of like like downplay it. Like, oh, well, no, guys, come on. We have we're 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 cool. I know all those other guys are quiet quitting, but we've got this great dynamic going and like the, <laughs> this workplace is great. Like you don't have to quiet quit. Come on. Yeah. So there's kind of a cultural there, there's uh, OK, but you're t- you're setting up kind of a straw man of the man, like somebody out there who isn't also part of this machine that's getting a benefit from this and, and doesn't want to have to reckon with well, it. Well, and that's this is the idea, though, is the quiet quitting is bringing to the forefront all of these implied things. Like when we hired mm. this employee, there's this there's the list of things we want them to do, and there's the list of implications that we expect them to do. It's bringing all those to like make them deliberate decisions. A lot of HR professionals that I'm seeing, um, I'm not going to speak for my wife, but I'm, I'm reading things and I'm watching these people talk. HR professionals are the one at the forefront of this, like talking to managers be like, you need to talk to your employees about this and really figure out what are some of the implied expectations that you've put onto them without realizing it. And mm, some of the, I like that. I think that's a healthy dialogue. I, it is. No, no objections listen, there. Listen, man, the HR profession is all about healthy dialogues, but you, they don't, they don't happen. Like, like, okay. This reckoning that the HR profession is having with this, I think, was driven by the COVID quarantine. It triggered, probably similar to what we talked about last time on the on when we discussed the book Super Better, that there was this moment of post-traumatic clarity where people are like, what's important to me? I could have died. Like, what do I really care about? What's important to me in my life? And there has been what's called the Great Resignation. It's this historical trend that can be measured on a graph of a bunch of people quitting their jobs and then not going back. Yes. And man, that was really fun to live through. And like all these people having hiring problems and like just all of the, uh, like the, there was so many. For all these reasons that you well, said. And there were so many facets to it. Like the, like all these generations saying like, all oh, these millennials are just quitting because they want to get higher pay. When actually statistically it was mostly baby boomers actually finally retiring for the first and final time. Yeah, There's like, millennials definitely did not invent this. There, there was uh, people saying like, oh, oh, these fast food restaurants have – every one of them has now hiring signs, but they can't get any people because nobody wants to work fast food. When actually these fast food restaurants realized that, yeah, six people quit, but all of the work was getting done by the coworkers picking up their slack. And so the longer they can stretch out this time where they don't have to hire six more people, it's just a much higher profit margin. And Is that true? I have a hard time believing I have that. seen several – instances where there is documented evidence of people like applying like valid candidates applying for multiple positions and they're just being denied and rejected for no known reason okay i'll say i'm open to the idea because one of my children is applying for jobs right now and they're telling me different versions of what you just said they'll have a sign out front that says they're hiring they'll turn in an application and then go talk to the management and they'll go no we're not hiring yeah because the sign is not there because they need help the sign is there for the customers no it's to convince the current employees that the management is trying to hire when they're not actually weird 
Like, don't worry, guys. Okay. Hey, you only, I, you only have to pull. I'm skeptical, but I'm open to the you've idea. You've only got to pull 10-hour shifts for another week or two until we can get two more people in here. Just just ride it out. We'll get there together. Man, that's that's wild. I, I don't know. I don't know. There's a market of labor, and there's kind of a decision that has to happen. So how do you decide as an employer when you have a quantity of labor that needs to get performed, whether or not you're having it done by an hourly worker or by a salaried worker? Uh, so the, the the question between salary versus hourly is an interesting one. Um, be, people don't realize. like So there, there's a couple sides to this, too. One of the aspects of this quiet quitting is that you need to compensate people for the work that they do, which includes all of these implied expectations, right? Right. Here's the problem. And the other side, like, you, oh, we just, if these people are going above and beyond, you need to pay them. And if you don't pay them appropriately, they're going to move on. The guy, the term he used was, if you don't compensate your employees for the, these, all these extra going above and beyond, then you're quietly firing them because they will find other opportunities. Mm, I like that. I like that too. I like. Here's the problem though, Ben, and I've... I've experienced this as well. People are only worth what they're worth and no amount of money will make them change their behavior. Like if you want some, like somebody that is performing as an employee to this certain level and you say, oh, well, I want them to perform more or I want them to perform better. If you give them a pay bump, statistically speaking, yeah, you'll get more productivity out of them for a month. And then they're going to slide back into their normal routine and their normal habits. Maybe. Uh, I, I, the fundamental law of economics is people respond to incentives. Now you're just talking about like a one-time pay bump, which is one kind of incentive. You can. I, I think the difference here we need to make this. I want to make this very clear. What we're talking about is if there's a person that goes above and beyond and isn't being paid for that, getting a raise, they're going to continue to go above and beyond to the level that they were before. Sure. But if a person is performing at you know what you consider, let's say seventy points, if we want to make it arbitrary. And you want them to perform at 80 points, paying them more is not going to make them perform at 80 points forever. It'll make them perform better. Like, hey, you need to earn this raise I just gave you. Yeah, sure. No problem, boss. They'll do it for a month and then they'll go back to being a 70 employee. Maybe. I, I, I think people do respond to incentives and you can get more out of people by incentivizing it. Or it people in general, if not a person specifically. Like this is a 70-point job, but we need it to be an 80-point job. So we'll pay you 80 points. And if that person can do an 80-point job, we'll let them. Otherwise, they'll go away and we'll get a new person that can do an 80-point job. Okay. Well, and but that goes back to the idea that you need to actually identify the things about the position that you want including all of the implied expectations that you weren't saying earlier. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of stress on this in the military surrounding what we call the whole airman concept, which is a buzzword that they use in the military surrounding the idea of all the extra things we expect you to do. Yes, we give you specific job training for your specialty and career field, but we also want you to volunteer. We also want you to, <laughs> you know, help do the the booster club and and the the air force ball and the commander's change of command and, i mean your job doesn't require the airman leadership school yeah, your yeah. job doesn't require a master's degree but if you didn't get your master's degree you wouldn't have gotten that job right like that that happens right. in the real world too like just uh, uh, there's so many aspects so I watched a couple of videos like you were talking about of people talking about this, and, and some of them were saying some form of the thing of you, what you're expecting of me is more than you're paying me to do. So couldn't you, by that 
word out of the mouth of the employee say, all right, we'll pay you more. There, now do the thing we're expecting you to do. Is that not fair? That is fair. And it goes back to the employee now if they're capable of doing that. Like a lot of okay. these TikToks that you see are, are uh, satirical. And I love the ones where it's the same person. They're playing two different people and they just cut back and forth. And one of them's like, hey, Judy just quit. She's got a bunch of projects on her desk. I'm going to need you to finish these up by the end of the week. I'm like, oh, so are you going to pay me Judy's salary for the week that I'm working on her stuff? Well, no, we're going to pay you your normal pay. Oh, well, then I'm not going to do it. Yeah, because that's not my job. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. So back to the back to hourly versus salary. You know, if you're an employer and you just have a big pool of work that you have to do, uh, there are ways of, of – of dividing it but really there's kind of a fundamental question you're asking and that is is this something that could be done with with a fungible labor or is this something that i need someone who's kind of less replaceable to do do i require skill and investment and knowledge or do i require hours of hands-on a task Ugh, and it, it's it's tricky for everybody and, and like in arizona there's a gray area in the middle where the two meet but at both ends you can see very clearly like yeah i just it doesn't matter i just need a beating heart and strong hands doing this thing or i need a very intelligent highly educated person who's knowledgeable do uh making decisions it's not just about that either but there's also the like there are laws that surround compensation when it comes to hourly versus salary wages because there were a lot of employers that try to abuse that and get around the overtime thing by just making all their employees salaried. And now there are laws on the books that like even if you are an exempt or a salaried employee, like if you work a certain amount of hours and you multiply your compensation by the hours that you're working at 1.5, like you have to be paying them in accordance with basically overtime laws if they're consistently going overtime, even if they are salaried employees. Okay, I won't dispute the fact that companies that are motivated by profit are incentivized to kind of abuse the 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 boundaries, the margins of these kinds of things. Where like, if a worker will give more, and I don't got to pay them more, we'll. Ladies take and it. gentlemen, I did it. It took eighty episodes and almost three years, <laughs> but I finally convinced Ben that companies, big organizations, are not always the good guy. Yes. Yeah. All right. So in the Air Force. They've recognized this in that as we've more and more professionalized, they're like, well, okay, so the Air Force, we have people that do their job that don't ever deploy, don't need to be inherently military, and we probably shouldn't be paying them as much as we pay military people. So we can transition those jobs to be civil servants. They'll stay there. They don't move around, and they do these jobs full time. But then the civil servants were worried that they would just get treated like military people that weren't wearing uniforms get abused in all the same ways that military people do. So they've set a whole bunch of protections in place. They've unionized. They, Even though they're on salary, they log their hours so that they have to get paid overtime if they're expected to come in and work extra hours to kind of separate them so there isn't just this blending of the two like they're just military people that don't wear uniforms. Right. And, that's, and they need that because if they didn't have those protections, if they didn't take those extra steps, that's exactly what the military would do to them. The same way that these companies, like you were saying, these companies are incentivized. Like if this guy's like we hired him for a $15 an hour job and he's working at a $20 an hour level, like they're going to ride that train for as long as possible. And they're probably not going to give him a raise. All right, listeners, if you're listening to me and you think you're undervalued at work, ask for a raise. Because a lot of times your manager will recognize that you are performing beyond expectations of the position and the salary that you're currently being paid. But they're just going to keep doing that for as long as possible because it keeps their costs down. And that, But then if you actually present them with the opportunity that, hey, I might go find something else or I have another opportunity 
on the line. Are how badly do you actually want to keep me? Okay, I'm going to reverse that question. Okay. What what incentivizes an employer to proactively go to an employee and offer to raise their salary? Oh, nothing. Exactly. That's the point that I'm trying to make. Oh, you didn't okay. flip anything right. around. I'm saying like the employee, the employer has zero incentive to give you a raise unless you ask for it. Okay. So this was brought to the forefront of the public consciousness and became a debate on all the like news channels and stuff like that because uh, they came up with a catchy term for it and a few satirical videos on a, on a trendy <laughs> uh, social media platform. Um, but this is not new at all, ever. In the history of mankind, this, this tension has existed. Yeah. From, from the earliest days. Yes, of course. Um, yet, yes, Generation Z has popularized it on TikTok, but just go back... 20 years and you have office space 1999 you know gen x that's what that movie was about it, like uh this is the magnum opus of quiet quitting <laughs> it really is like he had a whole speech to the to the bobs that's like uh, uh yep. my only real incentive is not the thing is asshole. bob it's not that i'm lazy it's that i just don't care <laughs> don't don't care it's a problem of motivation all right now if i work my ass off and intech ships a few extra units i don't see another dime so where's the motivation and there's something else bob I have eight different bosses right now. Eight? Excuse, yeah, eight, Bob. So. <laughs> so, that, so that means when I make a mistake, I have eight <laughs> different people coming to me about it. That's my only real motivation is not to be hassled and the fear of my losing your job. But you know, Bob, that will only make someone work just hard enough not to get fired. I love that you had to read that off and I could have quoted it to you without reading it. <laughs> it's the magnum opus. And it isn't just him. They've got him in the professional setting, but then they also had Jennifer Aniston in a low-end hourly job yes. doing the same thing. Yeah, exactly the same thing. She's she, like, oh, she's working at Chastis. It's like, I noticed you only like, have 16 pieces of flair. It's like, well, 16 is the minimum. And I'm wearing, yeah, but Brian over there is wearing 32 pieces of flair. And then she finally yells at the guy. Like, if you want me to wear 30 pieces of flair, then make the minimum 30 pieces of flair. This is exactly what we're talking and then, about. And then he says, and I love this. This is the, the, the gist of the whole thing. He looks her in the eye and says, what do you think of a person who only does the bare minimum? <laughs> and, like, that question is exact. It encompasses, like, the other side of the argument perfectly. It's they're creating this culture. That you have to go above and beyond. You have to always perform above and beyond what you're being compensated for in order to stay competitive. If you've ever done any reading or heard any kind of research about the companies that implement unlimited PTO, unlimited paid time off. Have you ever heard anything about them, Ben? Um, No. I how, no. Yeah, that sounds crazy, right? Oh, we're just going to give employees yeah. as much time off as they want. And that sounds psychotic, but what they find in studies is that those companies that implement this, all of their employees work more, take less paid time off, and it, it, like across the board. Because what happens is it turns into this competitive behavior. It's like, yeah, I could take every other Friday off, okay. but there's... I'm a big believer in what you there's, just said. Huge. Yeah, there's Bob over here. Bob's not taking every other Friday off, and now he's going to get out ahead of me. This is the same thing that you're facing down with your promotion boards. Yes. Okay, so we... Sometimes in organizations, we have these things that we've set up as an adversarial relationship because we believe it's necessary. If I don't track and limit the amount of paid time off people take then they're going to abuse it and i and it'll hurt the bottom line for the company 
Well, uh, a great example I heard in the book um, Turn the Ship Around by David Marquet. He was a submarine captain. And on submarines, it's important that they have times where they're traveling silently. And so when they go into silent mode on the ship, everyone has to do everything quietly on the ship. Like if you drop a wrench, that could be heard by an enemy submarine and everyone's lives could be in danger because of it. So they set up their system for tracking this in an adversarial way where if someone made a loud transient, as they called it, they would an investigation would kick off. And it was adversarial because the person who did it didn't want to get caught. <laughs> so he decided as a captain, what he was going to do is set up in a system where everyone cared about running silent and that they self-reported loud transients instead of conducting an investigation. And then what he found was it reduced the total number and people were reporting stuff that they didn't even know about. <laughs> there you go. So, like, Yes. That's the kind of thing I'm talking about. Like the organizations that implement this policy, it's actually worse for the employees because now they're pitting the employees against each other in some ways. Yeah. So is it true then, and kind of what you're saying is that if you leave people free to do the right thing because they want to, they will? If you leave people free to do the right thing because they want to, what happens is then it turns into this competition amongst themselves for promotions and for hiring practices. This is pay, unlimited paid time off is not something you can do if you have five employees. This is something right. you do if you have 10,000 employees that are all competing to maintain their own position. If at any point be like, hey, we're going to replace you. And it's not because you took too much paid time off, but it's because you're not here enough. Like those are two distinctly different things from us, our perspective as the employer. We need you to be more available than you are. You're not. So we're replacing you. Okay, so you know how I said this is an old idea? I was When, when you sent this to me and said we were going to talk about it, I had the oldest thing I could think of came to mind. This was a, a biblical parable out of the mouth of Jesus Christ. <laughs> he said, and this is just think of this in terms of the debate that we've been having. I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd giveth his life for his sheep. But he that is an hireling and not the shepherd, whose own the sheep are not, Seeth the wolf coming, and leaveth the sheep, and fleeth, and the wolf catcheth them, and scattereth the sheep. The hiring fleeth, because he is an hireling, and careth not for the sheep. Yes. I mean, that's, that's, that's JC, like, on the record as talking about, like, you need to, like, if you expect this guy to give his life for the sheep, you, that needs to be a clear, set expectation in hiring, and you need to compensate him appropriately. Yes, and the distinction he makes between a hireling and a shepherd is ownership. That's and I think that's real, really what's at stake here. And that's what you want as an organization. You have a mission. You have a goal that you're trying to achieve. And if you have salaried employees and you want to get more than them out of the contract minimum, you're trying to get them invested. You want them to be shepherds, not hirelings. Yeah, you're, you're doing the exact opposite. You're, you're the man. In the conversation that you're having right now, you're trying to spin it as a virtue, but you're the man in this conversation. You're talking okay. about how the military indoctrinates us, you, everyone that works for them into thinking that like, oh, we're part of the mission and we're a team and we are important to the safety and defense of America. So we all have to give way more than we than we have to. And 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 the problem has been you need to stop carrying that around with you when you leave the force because people will abuse that. So I watched Trevor Noah on the on Comedy Central do a bit on this where he kind of talked about the quiet quitting trend and what that looked like, uh, you know, like scheduling, like you said, scheduling a, an hour meeting at 430 when you're supposed to get off at five. Um, but then he kind of talked about professions where we 
expect people to give beyond the minimum? What What are some you would think of that are well, you professions I mean, where you expect people to go beyond? The first thing you said was teachers. We expect teachers to go beyond, and we're not paying them near enough. It's a travesty right? when we pay teachers. Um, Doctors. First responders. First responders of all sorts. Yes, every one of them. Anytime a day or night, get there as soon as possible and stay as long as it takes. I mean, uh, police officers, they're getting a lot of guff right now, but like they're in a terrible job where they have to go into life-threatening, potentially life-threatening yep. situations every day, and then we get mad at them when they mess up. Like Their life is on the line all the time, and if they overreact, it's on them. That sucks. Yep. Trevor Noah gave the example of like uh, a police officer with a bullhorn in a hostage negotiation. He's like... Hey, how many hostages do you have in there? Oh, hang on. It's 5 o'clock. Can we hold this until tomorrow? My shift is over. They're like, <laughs> of course, there, we, we do need to be able to have some things. And I feel like the military falls in that space. I know you're calling me the man. And yet a lot of people, or a lot of really smart people who get paid a lot more than me, have made an effort to indoctrinate me so that I'll believe that I am a piece of the mission that's doing this important thing that's bigger than myself. But uh, I find my job more rewarding when I approach it that way. So this is going to go back to another one of those weird, like I'm, I'm not wrong and I'm not hip, a hypocrite, but I hold two disparate ideas in my head at the same time. And yes. I have been railing this whole time that the military is built on this, like the foundation of the military is you need to give more than they're paying you for. But at the same time, like I was, um, when I was going to the Academy, they taught us specifically about the term professionalism and like what constitutes a professional. And the idea of a professional is somebody that does something that is either so technically complex or that is so niche that the general public can't hold them accountable to say you did a good job or you did a bad job. The professionals have to hold themselves accountable in order to fulfill their role in society. And so that was pressed into our brains while we were going through this training is that officers are professionals and that you need to do an, an outstanding and an amazing job because nobody's going to know different if you don't yeah you need to be a shepherd not a yes hireling. and so me personally i hold myself to those standards regardless of the job that i'm doing regardless i'm an accountant now working for a firm and i do the absolute best job that i can but at the same time clock hits five i'm walk i'm out the door and i'm not worrying about anything that's going on in the office anymore so aren't there certain circumstances though where you you just you know, uh, Stephen R. Covey in Seven Habits of Highly Effective People talks about priorities in terms of urgency and importance. And there are obviously things that happen that are both urgent and important. And those, will, those if they fall outside of business hours, you just do them anyway. I have a perfect example for you because this happened this week. So okay. I was Great. I was wrapping up on a Friday. Okay, I have a, I have a client that just came in. Their their stuff is a total mess, and I have to. I'm already on the edge of my seat. What the heck is a tax emergency? It's not a tax emergency. It's an accounting emergency. Okay, accounting emergency. I, I got it. Right, so this company has, like every small business, has been doing their best maintaining their books for as long as they could, right? And before, they had one owner, so they had to report on their personal taxes, which the stakes when you're reporting your business stuff on a personal tax return is very, very low. Like, it's there's not a lot of information. It's a one-page form, for crying out loud. Like, right. there's only so much you can put on there and screw up. But now they hired another person or they didn't hire another person. They brought on another owner. So it's a partnership. So now it's a business tax return. So their tax return goes from one page to like 30 pages. Okay. You're filing on behalf of a non-person. Yeah, exactly. And so there's a lot of more detail. And not only that, but like business owners are great at, ugh, God, we're entering Josh's accounting corner. 
<laughs> like business owners are great at a profit and loss statement. It shows your income and your expenses. That makes sense to people. Here's the money I made. Here's the money I paid out. Here's the bottom line and how much I get to keep and my profit at the end of the day. Yay. Business owners, what they don't understand is the balance sheet, which is a snapshot of their business through time. It shows all of the assets, all the liabilities, and all of the equity. This is what really trips people up. Assets, that's easy. This is the stuff the business owns. This is the cash I have in the bank. Liabilities, that makes sense too. That's the stuff I owe. That's my credit card balances. That's the loans that I've taken out on the equipment that I've purchased. That kind of thing. Equity is what trips everybody up. It's how much have you, the owner of the business, put in and taken out of the business throughout the entire life that it has been going on. And people don't know that. Because business owners do this all the time. They just, they're just trying to get the job done. And so if they fill up their, their truck with a, a tank of gas using the wrong credit cards, like, oh, I use my personal card, my bad. That's a big deal. You just contributed out of your personal pocket a tank of gas to your business. And then on the other side, it's like, oh, well, I went out to dinner and I paid with my business card because my wife was there and we just, that was just a card I used. Well, you just took $150 dinner out of your business. And that is required to be tracked forever. Okay. So this, these people have been running this business, and now they have to report it, and they have not tracked any of this stuff, any of it. I got it. And so I'm, I'm like they, I have two weeks to take all of their, their, their handwritten legal pad like expenses and turn it into a legitimate accounting system of like this is where right. all the money went. So you got to fix the past and then tell them how they can do better going. Yes, forward. and we we split up exactly that way. Like right now we're worried about getting this done because your taxes are due in 2 weeks. After that I will train you on how to make this better for the future. Right. And so I was in there and I I'm, I'm Ben I'm just tearing it apart. Like these people have they they're using like an online invoicing system but they don't know how to match the payments that 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 they recorded to the payments that they deposited into the bank and it's all over the place they've got like a deposit from 2022 paying an invoice from 2019 and that's just not right and so i have to i had to unlink everything in the system and then go through everything one at a time making sure that they lined up properly okay Dude. and so i'm cleaning up 2021 and that left 2022 undone and I was I was leaving work. I was like, all right, that is it. I've hit my 40 hours this week. I'm clocking out. I'm going to have a great weekend. And then I just, I see a new email notification. I'm like, well, let's just take a look at this real quick. And it's this client and they're freaking out. It's like, I just logged in and a client that I, I know is completely paid off is showing like $100,000 due. And I don't know what's going on, wow. what's happening. And it's like, yeah, that was me trying to clean up all of your nonsense and I haven't gotten to the next year yet. <laughs> like I cleaned up 21. I am out of time for the oh. day. And now there's a bunch of stuff that's left undone for 2022. Okay. So, Were they willing to accept that or did you have to stay late? I didn't. It would have taken me longer to call them and explain to them that this is a normal thing. Everything is fine. Don't panic. I will fix it on Tuesday after the long weekend. It would have taken me longer to do that than to just go back into their system, link a handful of transactions real quick, and then make everything look like it's supposed to work. Okay, look. okay. Uh, okay, so this was both important and urgent. Yes, and so I, so here is the dichotomy. is I stayed 20 minutes after hours to fix, to fix uh -huh. those problems and then email the client saying, hey, that was me. Here's what happened. I fixed it. Everything's fine now. Have a great long weekend. Yeah, that's like you said, that's much easier and a better use of your time. That's one side of the coin. The other side of the coin is I also clocked that time. My employer will right. pay me for that 20 minutes of overtime that I spent. Okay. Sounds like win-win for you and them. 
because if you'd spent the extra time explaining to them and then come in and done it, it would have taken longer. So, but this is (laughs) the expectation though, is like, if I was a salaried employee, I would have just done that. I would have just done it and not thought twice about it. As an hourly employee, I had to sit and think for a second, like, well, do I clock this extra 20 minutes that I absolutely had to do? And the answer is yes, of course I'm going to clock this extra time. But if I was a military member, of course you don't. You don't get paid the extra, like, the urgent and important things that hit your desk at 6 o'clock on a, on a Friday or whatever. You just do it and then suck it up regardless of the circumstances. If you had had to take the later flight and miss your daughter's birthday from last episode, you just would have had to suck it up and the military would have not apologized at all for it. Yeah. All right. Well, let me let me sum up from my perspective and then I'll let you have the last word. <laughs> so, you know, whether we're calling this working to rule or quiet quitting or that great song from The Simpsons in 1997 that I'll put a link to in the show notes, <laughs> um, this is not a new thing. Hireling and the shepherd, you know, this, this is the idea of a society reckoning with its relationship with work and how work fulfills purpose in your life. Is it something, do you work to live or do you live to work? And, you know, where is that dividing line? And everybody's got to come to that reckoning themselves. And organizations as well can't just abuse people because of their willingness to err on the wrong side. So for me, I think it's just about understanding my purpose in an organization and what I'm doing and feeling like I've reached a good balance. If the COVID quarantine caused people to take a reckoning with themselves in their life and it's caused a bit of a reset in our society, I think that's a good and healthy thing. I think this dialogue is important. Do I think it'll really move the needle in the long run? Not a lot, but I think it's good to ask these kinds of questions. I think this trend is good, not necessarily because of what it's called or what it, what the the farcical or the satirical like comments about it are. It's good in that it's making people think about their jobs and what they do. Everything in your life should be a deliberate decision. You should you shouldn't just do things because they're implied expectations. You should do things because you made a decision to go above and beyond, or you made a decision to fulfill your expectations that the employer set, or whatever. And so if this trend comes to nothing else but having a more nuanced conversation upon hiring and like, hey, what is really going to be expected of me? What do I really need to put into this? And am I actually going to be compensated for it? Then that makes it a good uh, trend. Yeah. So, listener, what do you think? If you have an opinion you'd like to share, you can go on our subreddit uh, or you can go on our Facebook page and sound off. Let us hear your voice. Tell us what you think. Um, we'd love to hear from you. If you like what we do, consider sharing us with a friend. If you like us, maybe your friends will like us too. If you really want to show us some love, consider taking your phone out of your pocket right now and giving us a good review on the podcast player of your choice. You don't even have to fill out the description. Just the five stars is fine. We'll take that. (laughs) And if you want Ben and I to discuss like the intricate details of being in and out of the military from now until the end of time, consider becoming a patron on our Patreon page. And until next time, try to be a little less bad at magic.